I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And we love to watch. We love to watch John fucking Carpenter's The Thing. How's it going, Peter? Hey, dude. I'm feeling really good right now. You should be. We are going to talk about your favorite movie of all time. Yeah, I, I admire our restraint in uh, <laughs> waiting six months to get six to this months. Movie. Yeah, yeah. And we had it. We had we had it so many different when we started like organizing how the theme months were going to work. We had this like it could be a whole John Carpenter month or Arctic horror or uh, who do you trust like paranoid horror. Uh, we, there was definitely, it, I think it had placeholders in a bunch of different months just because it does kind of wear all these great, fantastic hats. But then this seemed like soonest way to get it on to talk about it for some sort of Halloween theme. For our Halloween month of these sci-fi horror remakes, for some reason, there's something that, that just makes sense about both The Fly and The Thing as October movies. I usually watch The Thing every... It's my favorite movie in the world. I usually watch it every winter if we get, like, a blizzard here in Chicago or something. I, like, try and get a couple people together and we drink too much and uh, uh, watch the movie and just, like, let the snow just fill the streets. <laughs> if you really want to get in the mood, you should also uh, drink a bunch but then wait maybe 48 hours of, with no sleep. And then you guys all get in the room and watch the movie. <laughs> Well, I was—I don't want to get in it, into it too soon, but uh, did you know that the there's an Arctic research post in um, in Antarctica that yes uh, they knew, watch knew that. this movie every year to like break in the winter and also break in the new guys. That's that's amazing, and they should. I mean, there's not what other Antarctic uh, movies are you watching? I suppose maybe uh, Encounters at the End of the World. It's kind of untapped. Like, I yeah. would love an actual Lovecraft adaptation. I would love for, ideally, Guillermo del Toro to get his Mountains of Madness adaptation off the ground. Or it's any that, movie that's that great he's working Arctic. on, really. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it's, it's, it, I'll get into it later, but the, the sort of Arctic setting is uh, rather untapped. So I can see why it would be super singular for people. Just like, you see... There's the snow building up around you and and you're in this like very specific, very lonely place on Earth. And to kind of make a joke about it is, uh, I don't know, it's great. <laughs> it also could be like someone left the VHS copy there in 1984 and they don't get no one. No one's bringing shipments of new movies to the base. <laughs> <laughs> so they're watching like that Conan the Barbarian, E.T., uh, Flesh Gordon. <laughs> just Flash Gordon. Just though. Flash Gordon, yeah. <laughs> they don't even know that there is a Flash Gordon. No, no one's told them. They don't let them out of those bases. <laughs> they just have to stare in there and, I don't know, what do the people in the thing do? Look at snow? They look at What's snow. their mission? Yeah, I don't, they're, uh, to, to finally beat that computer at chess, and then <laughs> when Kurt Russell destroys it, uh, there's no chance of that. So they have to stay there and build a new computer. That was their secondary mission. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, Wilford Brimley uh, creates like a uh, apocalypse computer in this movie. Yeah, Wilford Brimley as himself. Um, yeah, they just wandered onto set. And yeah. they, they showed him that computer program on the first day, and then he understandably got upset. Yeah, I like the idea that they just like they brought him there and just explained it as if it was real. Like, hey, 
just FYI, we're trying to shoot this movie. This thing's running around, and he just they walked in one day, and he had an axe, and he was breaking everything. <laughs> I like the idea of him just being like, they're explaining it, and he's just going, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. I'm better now. Uh, just <laughs> instantly understanding everything they're saying the moment it happens. Yeah, well, he wrote the computer program, so he yeah. got it. <laughs> it, was, it was still his calculations that God. caused him to, to break it apart with an axe. But anyways, as you can tell, we're super anxious to talk about the thing. And actually, so instead of instead of doing our normal games, uh, Dustin Kosky, wherever he is right now, like he just started skipping a little bit. He doesn't know why, but that's because uh, there's not going to be a game this week. We're gonna instead we're gonna spend this opening intro. Uh, kind of talking about uh, something that Peter and I both like to do uh, in October, which is watch horror movies. We're going to talk about what our plans are, personal goals for this year, and a little bit of what we've watched. And then we're going to kind of dive into the movie. We're going to have a little bit of a – it's not really a detour when it starts the show, but <laughs> uh, we, we're going to start off a little bit in the wrong direction talking about just the concept of favorite movies uh, since we're only going to get to do two of those ever on this show, although – should be noted, as we mentioned, neither of us have seen Air Bud yet, so possible that could jump up to the top of the list. There's always room it. for growth. There's always room for growth. So, uh, and then, yeah, that we're going to get into the thing. So, uh, Peter, do you want to kick us off talking about uh, what our plans are uh, for Spooktober? What? Jesus Christ. What our plans are for Spooktober? So, um, on the show, obviously, we're going to be covering The Fly, the original Fly with Vincent Price, and then we're going to be covering the Cronenberg remake. And then at the end of the month, if you heard last week, we're going to be doing a special episode that's going to drop on Halloween uh, about horror anthologies. So, uh, any horror movie with a bunch of short films contained within it, we're going to try and uh, catch up with as many of them as we can. There's actually, if you just Google... Uh, horror anthology and wikipedia there's a really handy list that pops up that i don't think anything is missing from uh that i can think of and uh yeah i'm watching i think eight of them this month and Holy uh, shit. <laughs> i'm already I've, I've, so so yeah let's talk let's talk about what we're doing personally too yeah on a personal level this is my second year doing it hopefully uh successfully i've burned out in, re- in other years, but I'm going to try and watch 31 horror movies in October. Aaron is going to be doing the same. And I'm, and well, I'm doing it better. Uh, because are you doing the, are you doing Hooptober? I'm not doing Hooptober, but I am trying to do, I'm trying to do 31 new to me horror movies. So like, yes, the thing is the same thing. Same yeah. Thing. The, oh, you are doing the same thing. Yeah. My list has 34 entries right now and three of them are repeats. Okay. So yeah, I, uh, yeah, I made a list of 38 new ones knowing that there may be something I'm just not in the mood for. So I wanted to have alternates, but like, I'm not counting the thing, even though it's, I, it's a horror movie. Um, I'm not counting that at this point. Anyways, maybe when I get desperate to say, I watch 31 horror movies when I realize I'm not going to make it, I'll do it. But for now, like, I'm not counting the thing in my totals. If I count thing in my totals, I'm, it is October 4th and I'm an eight. So my month is off to a good start. Yeah, you're, watched, be- you're beating me. Um, not by much, though. What are you at? Seven? No, I'm at I'm at five new ones and then the thing. So six total horror movies. Uh, okay. And I, I did it last year. I did it. I mentioned on the last show uh, I did it, uh, which was extremely difficult. Uh, because I had my wedding and my 10-day honeymoon in the middle of October. Uh, thankfully, it, it rained quite a bit in Mexico. So, uh, like, for seven of the 10 days. Uh, apparently, there's a monsoon season. Um, <laughs> so I want you to Google that before you decide to get married on that day. Uh, but 10-10 but was so easy to remember. It was still worth it. I'm yeah. never going to forget. 
Uh, or you could have just bumped your honeymoon. Where where were you a year ago, Peter? <laughs> uh, <laughs> we were probably friends. We were absolutely friends, yeah. We were talking about Bloodborne. Yeah, that's it. Yep. <laughs> we were uh, just talking about Bloodborne. Bloodborne. Uh, no, I did, we I did get a... Ta- back to less intimate things. <laughs> yeah. This will... Uh, uh, so I got a... I don't know if you do the... Do you do time hop? Yeah, 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 yeah. I know what that is. So it's I a got Facebook thing where you can just like look up old posts, right? Well, just every day it alerts you of like any pictures that you took. It's on my phone. So it's like any pictures that I took, anything I posted to Facebook. It's just like, uh, you know, a year ago, two years ago, three years ago, people that posted on my wall or people that sent me pictures. So it was like a couple weeks ago, I got a uh, time hop notification for a picture that I took. Which was just um, my TV displaying the title Visiting Hours. <laughs> and why I took that picture is Peter and I, before I think we were, we were definitely not exchanging like actual messages, uh, private messages yet. And Very uh, private. Yep. And he recommended the movie and I'm like, oh, I think I'm going to watch it tonight. And then I took a picture of it starting and I, I messaged you the picture. Um, and and that is that is that led to literally tens upon tens of thousands of messages back and forth before we're like, maybe we should talk to each other and have it be recorded and broadcast. <laughs> That's kind of a sweet memory. Yeah. I kind of, I kind of like that kind of nostalgia because like you're like Facebook and Twitter and social media history. It just kind of becomes irrelevant as time goes on, but then it gains value with the, this like tinge of nostalgia. So like, I like the idea of something that that's just kind of a throwaway comment all of a sudden becoming really funny in retrospect. And that's something that's very funny in retrospect. Cause I remember I was talking about how in, there was a period in the eighties where people were obsessed with hospital horror movies. Yep. Like Halloween two and that and exorcist three and yeah. And you watched it and it was expiring from Netflix before October. So I'm like, Oh shit, I better watch it. And then for, I think I just was like, Oh, I'm going to let him know I'm going to start it. It's happening. <laughs> that's a great way to kick off the combo. Cause that's all we were talking about at first. was just like grisly horror movies. Mm-hmm. And then eventually grisly video games. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. So, yeah. So, yeah, I did it last year. But like I said, it was uh, it was tough. I'd done it in previous years. Like every October, it was all horror movies, probably for the last five, six, seven, eight years. Uh, last year, I don't know if it was just all the discussions in the Dissolve Facebook group where I'm like, OK, I'm going to do a better job keeping track and trying to hit a particular goal. So, you know, probably in previous years, especially before I had, you know, uh, my daughter, or even a wife, I was I could probably watch more on certain occasions, but it wasn't it was rewatches and it was just like I'm just gonna watch horror movies, so I have no idea how many I watched. Uh it's now that I'm really trying to kind of codify it and say, okay, I wanna watch this and using uh Letterboxd, which is great for this to uh kind of organize and pre plan a list instead of just I'm going to watch horror movies and, you know, search through Netflix and go to Blockbuster. Letterboxd particularly makes it easy for the like sense of satisfaction because if yep. you're adding 31 movies you've never seen before there's a little sidebar that'll say you've seen zero of these movies you've seen one you've seen two and also like just the way it's set up with those rows you can just be like okay i've worked through these three rows like there's a sort of visual sense of satisfaction you can organize the chaos but the biggest benefit of that and this is kind of why hooptober exists one of the primary reasons hooptober exists sort of codifying the challenge of watching you know 31 ish horror movies in october and it's uh uh, trying to keep diversity in your list and that has two advantages one it breaks you out of your your wheelhouse um and two 
on top of that, it keeps you from getting burned out. Not just watching like eight slasher movies. Yes, it pushes you to like watch stuff from different countries and different genres. And yeah, if you're really comfortable with slasher movies, like, yeah, you can probably, you know, watch a third of the movies or slasher movies, but eventually it's going to, Hooptober is going to, the, the qualifications are going to push you out. Mine is just 31 uh, movies. My list almost qualifies for Hooptober without trying because I want to keep diversity in. It's, it's more fu- It's more fun that way and it keeps me from getting burned out, like I said. Yeah, and I actually, I feel like I learned a lot because I did the same thing last year for the first time, which was like making a pre-planned list. And I found I was super burned out by the end of it. And I I did a good job of diversity in the sense that I was picking a lot of foreign movies and older movies and all that kind of stuff that you need. But I wasn't balancing those out with like newer ones or different types of horror. So I was really kind of like in a weird sweet spot of like 70s and 80s horror movies. And then a couple like 20s and 30s ones that like freaks and some stuff that I never caught up with. And then that was basically it for like 30, you know, 35 entries. I think maybe like one or two recent ones. But that's where I kind of learned like this year when I was planning it, it was much more of a Okay, I I need more diversity in types of horror and newer ones as well. Like, I don't need to just use this as a catch-up or a catch-all for horror movies that I've been meaning to watch from, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago. So I think my list list feels more balanced this year across the board. And as a result, I'm even more excited to... um, to to continue to dive in and watch all the ones on my list like last year last year it did feel like there was a about half of them that it was like yeah this has been on my watch list forever for a reason and now <laughs> i'm using spooktober to finally watch it but when you have too many of those picks the reason that you never got around to those movies in some respects is that you just weren't as excited about them and so my list became more of a chore than i would have liked so I think yeah. I, I think we, I think I fixed it. I think last year in Spooktober, uh, I hit 43 movies, including rewatches, and a lot of that was because uh, I live in Chicago, like I mentioned earlier. And last year we went to uh, Music Box of Horrors, which is a 24-hour film festival. Uh, at the music box and it uh i fell asleep last year during ganja and hess um so so uh that's the sort of festival was it kept it very diverse we watched like child's play 2 and shockwaves and deep red and it it was a it was a really fun experience it helped buff my numbers really fast um it's i love the music box to death so it was a it was a fun fun way to spend a weekend some year you should come in (laughs) yeah that would be a blast um because i do need to get to chicago i think at some point once my daughter's i think at one point like in a couple years when my daughter is a little more it's not as much of a challenge if like one of us is gone for a couple days like it's not it's not a challenge necessarily but it is you know a two-year-old needs constant supervision like once they're four it's a lot more like okay go play in your room for a little bit or you know yeah, I'll watch you while you're in the backyard playing with the dogs. Like it's not a, it's not as much of a 24-hour job, which gets a little more taxing when it's just one of you. So yeah, in a couple of years, I I could totally see that working. Yeah, hopefully in a couple of years, I still have no kids. Yeah, please 
my kid's going to be, although I could, I guess, have another kid, but please hold off on procreating and expanding your potential family uh, until I get up there to see 24 hours of horror with you. <laughs> I base my family planning off of uh, horror movie festivals. Uh, yeah, so let's let's just do a quick, uh, we're not going to pull our whole list, although I think we'll, we'll put those in the show notes. We'll put our letterbox list that we're kind of working through uh, for this year's Spooktober in the show notes. And just a quick, what you thought of it, if you're listening to this podcast, and we'll give a recommendation if uh, if you should see it. Okay, so I've watched a couple anth- or I've watched a set of anthologies so far. I started the month with Cat's Eye by Stephen King, which is kind of a funny like Stephen King reference smash up. He wrote the script and it's fun. It's got some cool troll effects, but overall it didn't really blow me away. That's but, on my list this year as well. Yeah, it scratches the creep show itch. And we should say that Peter Peter, you and I did not collaborate on our list, so it's always funny how many crossovers there are. This happened last year too. Yeah, last year I, we both watched Freaks and there were there were And Hausu. Just and Hausu. Yep, yeah. yep, yep, yep. And uh I also on top of the anthology thing, I've watched, let's see. I watched Southbound, which I highly recommend. I'll also talk about my that list. more at the end of the month. Um, I watched Tales from the Crypt from 1972, which is a great sort of classic British creepy um, uh, anthology series. Most of them are morality tales. That one is recommended. Good. Great. Um, yeah, I really recommend it. I've watched Vault of Horror, which is also in that box. Vault of Horror is the sequel. So I'll be watching that later this month to prepare for our special episode. Um, I really recommend that. I'm also like a big fan of the HBO show Tales from the Crypt. So it's kind of interesting seeing another riff on that. Uh, I watched Black Sabbath today by Mario Bava. Really colorful, really pretty. What else I watched? The Shallows I watched. Uh, yeah, we Shallows both watched is- that one. That was my kickoff movie because uh, my my wife actually watched the first three with me. And she, she likes some horror movies, but... She kind of gets excited uh, for Spooktober as well. I think she just kind of, you know, there's probably about a third of the movies that I have on my list that she has any interest in, but she's still like, last year was, I mean, again, we were on our honeymoon. She's like, oh, are you going to get there? Are you going to make it? Why don't you watch it? You know, so it was it was a lot of fun. But she liked The Shallows. I, I like The Shallows as well. I don't know why, but uh, my girlfriend also really wanted to watch the movie. For some reason, she doesn't like horror movies at all, but for some reason, she really wanted to watch a shark movie. So we watched it and we enjoyed it. Um, she didn't particularly like the ending. Yeah, uh, I thought spoiler. the ending it's was a little, new, but yeah, a little, little overcooked. Yeah, yeah, it could have been. It could have been simpler. I think the whole movie could have benefited from being stripped down more. Um, yeah, that's not that's not a pun because she's like in a bikini the whole time. Uh, I, no, I think it's just your pervy been, goals in life. <laughs> a little bit fewer pop songs and, and a few less uh, sort of stylistic flourishes, and uh, it could have been really something much more potent yeah i'd like to see the all is lost version of it exactly 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 i basically i think i was asking to watch all is lost but then again i mean it's a movie made for teenagers so you have to keep um your expectations checked a little bit but certain storytelling choices i think i think even teenagers would find silly so but yeah overall recommend the shallows and then the last one was i watched city of the living dead by fulci which is one of the last fulci movies uh of his his big ones that i haven't seen and i highly recommend it i don't like it as much as the beyond but it's basically like a brother movie to the beyond Hmm. in that it's it's inscrutability is an asset to me it's craziness makes me think of cosmic horror where like you can't possibly understand this and neither do the characters so yeah that's my month yeah you uh you guys talking about city of the living dead in the group today made me thinking that maybe i should try and adding it to my list because and i'm, I'm a little different on fulci than you are because i really did not care for the beyond i was surprised uh we have that uh, we won't get into that too much now because that's going to be one of our uh famous debate episodes that we've had one of at some point um but 
I really like this could turn around by the next time we watch it. <laughs> yeah, very possible. Uh, but then Zombie, which I really like. I dig Zombie, but I don't like it as much as his crazy supernatural movies because his crazy supernatural movies tap into that cosmic horror thing that I'm really I'm really into. I think he works better when he's he's nonsensical. When you're talking a movie about like um, viruses and that make people into zombies and stuff, like I think it, it uh not that zombie two or zombie uh isn't a crazy movie. But uh, it's yeah, it, it is just a, it's a good riff on a Romero movie. Yeah, and it's got some effects that Romero would never do, like a fucking splinter through the eye, very yep. very slowly style thing. The but shark yeah. attack is great too. The zombie versus shark moment. Yeah. It's yeah. it's basically a meme in an individual scene, and it has almost no effect on the movie. It's fantastic. Yeah, and I've never looked it up because I don't want to know how in danger that actor was. Because it is not a dummy. Or is this or is this a reverse situation where we should be concerned for the shark? Because, <laughs> like, maybe they did the uh, shark on chains or some shit. It's very possible. Again, I'm fine not knowing. Yeah, he might be just wearing, like, a mesh suit or something, and I don't know. The shark could have been played by an actor. <laughs> They're shark actors, right? Yes. <laughs> okay. There's a great dog actor in the thing. There is. Um, so, yeah, yeah that's, my, that's my rundown. Um, every week, I'll give you guys a quick quick rundown of what i've seen and uh if you want to see the full list i'll put a link to my letterbox in there and i'll put a link to letter aaron's letterbox and feel free to follow us and and such and uh comment on the list and uh yeah uh aaron is apart from the stuff we've already talked about what else have you watched this month you know you can include me in these things peter you don't need, it doesn't need to all be i'll do this i'll do that maybe i'll do it who knows who's editing what week peter i, I think i'm editing this week <laughs> okay well good you do it then we're a team. It's we love to watch. It's not I love to watch and another guy also likes to watch. This is the weirdest personal attack I've ever suffered. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what's Well, I'm hurt. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I don't know either. Uh, just, just a chance for a riff. So, yeah, I watch I watch The Shallows, which I really liked. Uh, again, kind of agree with some of Peter's criticisms that could have benefited from being maybe quieter and a little toned down in some respects. But, you know, definitely you don't get that many shark movies, really. Are we talking about this? And dinosaur movies. Yeah. There's like, since Jurassic Park, and I like Lost World as well, uh, even if you love the Jurassic Park series, let's say, even Jurassic World, um, you're crazy, but even if you love all of them, part of it has to be because no other movie is scratching that itch, right? Yeah, they're really withholding it for no reason. Yeah, if you love Jurassic World, part of that has to be, well, there's no other dinosaur movies. If you didn't know any better, you would assume that Universal owns the copyright on dinosaurs because <laughs> no one else is fucking making dinosaur movies. There's probably an awesome reason for it. like, I mean, except Spielberg, kid ones, like, like the good dinosaur, walking with dinosaur, just dinosaur. Like, they make, as I found out trying to show uh, my kid dinosaur-related stuff, there's a ton of kid stuff, but there's basically, besides Jurassic Park, I can't think of any, like, adult. Unless you count, like, something like pitch black which is like dinosaur like creatures is it people going back in time to fight dinosaurs if it's people like raising dinosaurs from the dead or something it's sort of a different type of movie as well there's oh that shit movie, they a, did the, they did do a sound of thunder which was fucking sound of thunder was 
garbage movie. Yeah. Terrible movie. That was the first time that I realized Ben Kingsley could slum it in a movie. Yeah. Because, like, I remember I grew up being like, oh, yeah, Oscar-winning actor Ben Kingsley. And, and that's then- funny because it was the 30th time that I realized that Edward Burns could slum it in a movie. <laughs> what? Not a big 15 minutes fan? <laughs> uh, I had that movie, The Twist, ruined for me for no reason. That's actually a decent little thriller. Yeah, it's but fine. But once you know the twist, it's probably kind of limp. Yeah, it, it, it was. I own it somewhere. <laughs> on Infinifil- terrible DVD buying habit. On, on Infinifilm DVD. <laughs> Go the inside the movie. <laughs> I just prefer the normal movie. I don't need to go inside the film. Oh, I like getting right in there. Desperado really looks watching perfect. the movie from the inside. <laughs> do you know how movies work? I don't. I do not. I've yet to watch one. Um, uh, Westworld is about going inside the movie. I mean, sure. No, UHF is about going inside the movie. Uh, inside, ironically, not about going inside the movie. <laughs> no, it's about... <laughs> It's about going inside the making of a new movie. <laughs> inside is about going inside of a pregnant woman with a knife. Yep. Have you seen it? No. It's. I'm going to watch it. Uh, it's apparently a Christmas Eve movie, so it's going to get scooted into my uh, Christmas horror watching this year. Oh, okay. That was unexpected of response, but um, yeah, it's not. I watched it two weeks before my wife gave birth. Oh, that's awesome. Did you also watch Proxy and uh, yeah, Brood? Well, and- uh, I definitely watched Proxy while my wife was pregnant. Whenever I have kids and we have like a horror movie festival, that's just all the movies you're not supposed to watch before you <laughs> you have a baby. Well, thankfully, like, there's a helpful guide now on the Dissolve because someone was recommending to mo- for movies that he should avoid. Yeah, I'm going to actually make that the programming. That'll make the festival. programming. Yeah, I'll watch The Brood and Proxy and all the ones we just mentioned. I don't know. I mean, Rosemary's Baby. Yeah, Inside wasn't, it was, it just wasn't that enjoyable, but it wasn't like, oh my God, what if this happened to my wife? Yeah. Anyway. I'm still in the shadows. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, please. Alien Abduction, which is uh, found footage movies on Netflix. Netflix thought I was going to give it a star and a half. Whoa. So I always avoided it. Netflix is pretty good. Netflix. Yeah, at at guessing at least a range, and I would say it was way off. Um, It's super cheap, so I get um, why the reviews were kind of bad. And not just cheap, just in a budgetary sense, but everything it does is like utilizing the oldest tricks in the book like it's silent and then boom loud noises and you know it's not revolutionary it's not i wouldn't even necessarily say it's a good movie but from a atmospheric horror that also like scares you it's super effective and that's fine for for a horror movie like not everything needs to be revolutionary i was i was creeped out had my skin crawl jumped a couple times that's that's worth it there's a brand of horror movie fan that I hope is representative of the whole, but there's this brand of horror movie fan that I keep running into and are people that I really, really like. They view horror movies as like, unless it's really boring or really cynical, they view these horror movie experiments as these experiments and that each one is sort of an opportunity to explore a different facet of how the genre ticks. Mm -hmm. And even if you don't like the movie overall, you can be like, like I just watched this movie called The Hollow. And it, like, I didn't like the movie overall, but it kind of, it made me realize that now a lot of indie horror movies are building really compelling characters and settings and relationships, and then they're falling flat on the horror elements. That's kind of an interesting thing that I don't know if that's ever been true. Horror has always been this exploitative, exploitive genre, and in an exploitive genre, you're, like, a Corman wasn't like, all right, this is going to be a really compelling two brothers relationship and then the monster will be whatever 
<laughs> like in the yeah. as an as an exploitive genre, it's always been that first. So the like jumping back a few steps, The Hollow taught me that like new a lot of new horror movies are busting their ass to tell compelling human stories, which is really cool. And even if I didn't like love the movie. I'm glad I watched it. And I think that's sort of a new thing with horror fans I'm seeing is like, I haven't seen Alien Abduction yet, but like a sort of appreciation for, I liked it because it riffed off of things that I like, which you don't really see in other genres as much. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think this Alien Abduction is a good example of like, not everything needs to be a deconstruction or to try to make it a more like take horror themes, but then add, uh, have it be an allegory for something. Um, you know, that's always been done with horror movies. One of the things I love about horror, but I'm fine too with just uh, hey, you know what? Uh, aliens are scary, and no one's made an, a found footage movie with that's just about alien abduction. Why don't we just do that, and that's fine? You know, they made effective. The atmosphere was good. I also have a, a sense of, you know, I watched so much X-Files and are aliens real and all that shit when I was a kid. There is there is something, like, creepy about that whole, like, abduction experience, even though I don't necessarily, I don't believe in any of that stuff is happening uh, anymore. But, you know, the, like, the design of the greys is inherently really super creepy and all of that kind of mythos with how an abduction occurs. And, they, uh, you know, there's some shitty acting and some cheapo special effects, but, like, they execute it really well. I feel like that's also kind of my wheelhouse. Like, I've recently been getting back into the X-Files. I think everybody has been in the past, like, two years. Yeah, so you got you got to wash the taste out of season 10 or whatever out of your mouth. <laughs> we all needed some time to rest. And I think, like, people like Kamel Nanjiani with his podcast like sort of helped kickstart and also it coming to netflix sort of helped kickstart the love again for the show and also it's a show that's like really easy to just be like you have to watch home you have to watch ice like you have to watch like these five episodes it's it's really cool to uh to just recommend people like random monster of the week stuff i tried watching the show all the way through over the past couple years and I always just get like discouraged because like I the, the macro plot never really goes anywhere. I always like that though. A lot of loose ends just like the conspiracy they're trying to weave. So yeah. it never it never bothered me. Like I thought it worked thematically. Yeah. It, I mean, yeah. But it, taking a step back, um, it's kind of funny that we're both non-believers in conspiracies and we're both uh, not religious at all. Because a lot of horror movies side with believers, specifically attack skeptics. Like Paranormal Activity is a movie wherein uh, the believer is the right one. The the girl, Katie, wants Mike Mika, Michael, whatever the fuck his name is, Mika to stop messing around with Ouija boards, to stop taunting the ghost, to just leave it alone until it goes away. And then Mika's just like, I don't believe in any of this shit, so let's see what happens. Like, that's sort of indicative of the whole genre. So it's kind of fun as a suspension of disbelief. I don't believe in ghosts. I don't believe in demons or I don't believe. I mean, I, I believe in aliens as like a whatever far away concept, but I don't believe in like alien abductions as this like pop phenomenon that people are just getting abducted left and right. Yeah, I think I think it's probably and I, I know I'm I'm probably speaking. I'm putting words in people's mouths or their thoughts or potentially creating a straw man argument here when talking about this. But I have to assume that. It's easier for someone like you or I to enjoy all these horror movies or enjoy like con crazy conspiracy theory stuff because it is just kind of like fun, dark adventurism for us where if you believe in like a literal devil that possesses people, I can't imagine that Exorcist or all these movies are considered fun 
for you. They're probably super stressful in a way that they're not for me. Not just stressful in the moment of like you're you're experiencing the horror, but like walking away from those movies and being like, yep, that's what fucking happens to people. Like, yeah. And that can be true whether you believe that aliens abducting you, whether you believe ghosts are haunting people. Um, I'm not trying to say that all these beliefs are inherently wrong. I mean, I, I don't believe that they're right. It's kind of like, you know, from from my perspective, I'm only going to find a movie about, say, a megalomaniac politician taking over America. That may be a well-made movie that I find interesting, but I'm not going to think that's a fun movie because that is something that I worry about right now in my everyday life. If you're worried about the <laughs> devil constantly attacking you or threatening you, probably at least a third of all horror movies are not going to be a good time for you. I think that's a really good point, that it sort of becomes this uh, fun little escape hatch for our like ar- like less rational parts of our being. Not to say that belief in God is like somehow irrational or something, but... I don't really want to get into that at all, but I'm yeah. more so. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not not really interested in that at all. But uh, I'm more interested in in the idea that like to us the the idea of um, ghosts and such are, are highly irrational. So it's kind of fun as this, pl- this super safe playground, which is what yeah. film should be. Film should challenge you, and then you should be able to leave. And if you don't feel like being challenged by the ideas anymore, put them down. And if you feel like still chewing on the ideas, still chew on them. Go see the movie again. Like, talk to people about it. Like, film is is supposed to be a safe place to play around. And, uh, yeah, I love love horror movies for that reason. I don't believe in a Christian concept of hell. But I like exploring the concept of hell. Like, that, that idea of what would that place look like. And what would happen if it leaked into Earth or stuff like that? Like, that's that's a kind of a fun, dark, conceptually thing to explore in fictional mediums. Would Again, would not be fun to explore if you're like, well, if I lie to my parents and then die without going to confession, I'm going to be in whatever terrible horror show that is for the rest of my life. Like, it's much less. And as someone who used to, like, I didn't watch as much horror movies when I was younger. And I was super Catholic or was at least raised really Catholic. Yeah, that you know, those things weren't as fun for me back then because how do you have fun with that when there's an actual devil out there? The concept of uh, Angel Heart or Faust really, really freaked the fuck oh, out. Oh, Devil's of me. Advocate, like, killed me. Yeah, it freaked the fuck out of me, and it still kind of does. The idea behind um He's always Angel out Heart. there, always looking, he's gonna find a way, like how you know, it's it's almost like uh something that depresses you because it's like well how am i ever gonna beat this yeah it's 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 a sort of nihilistic struggle especially in like the best adaptations of like faust or or other sort of uh, man versus the devil stories it's it's especially depressing because like a lot of the best ones don't have god stepping in (laughs) so it's just you're kind of on your own and uh, Yeah. yeah that freaked me out as a kid still i'm apprehensive to watch angel heart i watched it when i was a kid and it freaked the fuck out of me. And now I'm like, maybe that'd be a good movie for this month. Cause yeah, it's I saw it actually still scares me. I saw it like three or four years ago. Um, this is going to disappoint I, the fuck out of me. <laughs> I think so. I mean, it's good, but it was definitely not scary. Oh, okay. Maybe um, just conceptually scary. Yeah. Well, again, when you're when you're a kid and you believe that there's some version of this out there. Like I, I had a coworker who wouldn't see movies about ghosts because it was too ter- – like literally too terrifying because she believed that ghosts were real and that she had been in a haunted house. Like, yeah, I get it. How do you watch The Orphanage when you're like, shit, this could happen? You know? It's, exactly. It's, it's, it's tough. I, I think we probably repeat ourselves a little there. I, I have found that 
that the more you believe in the stuff that you're watching when it's meant to scare you, the harder it is to enjoy it. So it's even when I sort of pushed away from my Catholicism, the whole idea with a dude with a chainsaw was less scary to me because I was like, well, I got murdered with a chainsaw. I'm probably getting into heaven. But this like idea of this like horrible ghost that will just hollow you out as the days go on, like rob you of who you are is way scarier to me, especially as I get older. Like it's funny because you get older and like when I was a kid, I was like, why don't they just move out of the house? And now I'm older. I'm like, oh my God, what if I put all my money into a house and then I realize it's <laughs> yeah. haunted? Like, uh, well, now it's just more like it's way scarier than a ghost is like the dishwasher breaks one day when you're about to have guests over. <laughs> That's like the true horror of adulthood. <laughs> Anyway, uh, yeah, so my last three, I'll go through them really quick because we went on quite a tangent. Not surprised. So I saw Knock Knock, which is Eli Roth's uh, attempt at uh, respectability in his horror movies, Keanu Reeves. It is a piece of garbage. I would not recommend it. Um, which and is disappointing. I, you, and, you and Ryan, who was on the show for Southland Tales, uh, who I respect a lot, he, uh, both of you said not to watch it, which is rare. It's not scary. It's, it's, it's sexual politics or gross half the time um it has its heart in the right place and then it's like it's this idea of like two girls come to your door your wife and your family away and then they seduce keanu reeves and then basically make him pay for his indiscretion like that is the good framework for a horror movie and but it is played terribly and keanu reeves can be a very good actor and in certain situations but when he's in the wrong part, he tends to overmodulate and kind of seem ridiculous. And that's an example of that here. And it's so much gross politics about like every guy cheats and you throw two girls at a guy. If even if they're 15 years old, they'd have sex with them, even if they didn't know that. But then later, like it's it's kind of gross. It's not great. And I'm, I think it's general- an attempt at being honest, but it's more revealing about how gross the filmmaker is. Yeah, um, <laughs> I haven't seen Green Inferno. Um, I am a defender or a proponent of, depending on where you fall in the spectrum, of Cabin Fever, Hostel, and Hostel 1 and 2. But it was both boring and annoying. There wasn't anything really redeeming about it. Uh, anyway, then I watched Nightmare on Elm Street 2, which is uh, a movie I was expecting to to find really campy and goofy. And obviously, uh, especially if you watch the Never Sleep Again documentary, there's a lot about it. Has Is it unintentional? Is it intentional? Homoerotic subtext? And all that is true. But it's also like really dark and has some amazing gore effects. Um, I was super impressed by this movie, not just as a lesser Nightmare on Elm Street sequel, but like as its own thing. And even though I think it probably fails a little bit if you're like trying to find a movie that accurately really represents the Nightmare on Elm Street mythos as its own like weird 80s horror movie with just another character named Freddy Krueger. I think it's fucking fantastic. I think the Freddy movies in general have um, a weirdly high batting average in terms of I've heard defenders of the second one uh, was is the third Dream Warriors. Thir- third one's really good. So the only ones I've seen are one, two now and then uh, three and New Nightmare. And every single one of those I would rate as pretty good to very good or just great. Every single one of the movies it has its own little cult behind it. That's very different than, say, obviously they're much longer series, but the Halloween or Friday the 13th series where there's like agreed upon movies that you shouldn't watch. It's not which are the which are the bad ones. 
Like in Nightmare on Elm Street, I feel like it's more which are the bad ones. Like there's a couple bad ones, but most are worth your time. What do with, you skip? Yeah, with with Friday Thirteenth is okay. What are the good ones? <laughs> Same with Halloween. Like, like everyone knows number one, and then people. Some people like Halloween two. Some people defend H two O. Although I haven't seen that since I was high school, I would imagine it holds up like shit. And then three, a lot of people like, and then it's just kind of garbage all the way down. Yeah, and then obviously the um. The remakes of Friday the Thirteenth and and Halloween and and um, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street are all controversial because they have defenders and they have haters. Um, uh, Friday the Thirteenth is the best, I would say, and Nightmare on Elm Street I turned off halfway through. Hmm, that sucks because uh, the guy they got to play Freddy is uh, an amazing casting choice. Yeah, they really leaned into dark, gross, gritty no fun whatsoever and then also like really boring visually and then they're like let's really lean heavily into the child rape aspect which is what everyone wanted but let's make it yeah (laughs) let's make it uglier than a cw show like from that's that maybe not be fair now but let's make it uglier than a cw show from 10 years ago everything about that movie was gar i never turn off movies and i was just like this i I'm, I'm literally despising every second of this why am i continuing i yeah i rarely, i rarely turn off movies anymore so that's that speaks volumes um yeah is that was oh no um, the last one i don't need to talk about too much uh, is burby and sound studio which again was trying to kind of mix up the type of horror movies that i'm watching uh it was really good it was definitely not the normal horror movie very more into the lynchian Type, uh, not as extreme as like a really full on Lynch movie, but it kind of gets, you know, stranger and stranger and then kind of really has a breakdown near the end. Uh, Peter Strickland did it, who did the excellent uh, Duke Burgundy from last year. Um, I, I anticipated, you know, everything I'd read about it going in uh, and everything I knew about the director from the other work that I've seen by him. It was kind of like a I know I'm going to like this. It's just a question of how much. And the answer was. A lot. I liked it a lot. I liked it a lot too. I last, watched it last year for Spooktober, and uh, but I didn't love it. And I'm curious if I went into it with the the new eyes that it's more Lynchian and surreal. Like I, that month, I also watched The Strange Color of Your Body's Tears, which is way yeah, I more that. surreal. Yeah, that's awesome too. Yeah, that movie that movie is pretty pretty amazing. If not if not good, then just singular. I can think of very few movies that have as such a aggressive style and editing technique. And I've um, heard Amir, sorry, their their first movie is even better. Oh, really? Yeah, I- I'll have to check that out. The but that was a movie that I knew was going to be a strange sort of giallo surrealist movie when I went into it. Barbarian Sound Studio, I thought was going to be just about a sound producer who gets fucked up by uh, you know a murderer on set or something. It is not that. No. It's way stranger and it's way creepier because it's not that. Uh, yeah, yeah, once I there's like a it. turn about 20 minutes left that is like, whoa, okay, what the fuck's going on? That's a, it's a really good turn. Uh, they it, don't, it, it's, it, it's hard to execute. It veers into nightmare horror uh, pretty fast, which is, is lovely to me. Well, I know we ended up talking for a long time, uh, and that's partially because Peter and I are friends that like talking about horror movies. So, uh, well, we made the podcast. So. Yeah. You guys have a front row seat to just us talking like we were in a bar. So great. Yeah. Um, lovely. Yeah. You guys are paying for it though. <laughs> <laughs> no. Drinks on you. So anyway, yeah. Do you want to start talking about the thing? I love to start talking about the thing, dude. 
All right. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll do the fight. I mean, it's Peter's favorite movie. Uh, I will let you. I'll let you do the ninety second recap. Uh, I'll do the five second. Five second recap is uh, it's a fucking amazing movie by John Carpenter starring Kurt Russell. Perfect. Uh, the ninety second recap is there's an Arctic research post. Really, really south. stumbled right out of the gate. <laughs> <laughs> there's an there's an Arctic research post in the South Pole, and it is uh, filled with this group of scientists, doctors, secure a security guy, a helicopter pilot, blah blah blah. Everybody sort of has their own job, and one day they're all hanging on the rec room, drinking, being bored, and uh, a helicopter flies over the horizon uh, and is shooting at a dog, a husky chasing towards their camp and they hear the gunshots. So they run outside to see what the hell is going on. And it is a uh, two uh, Norwegian guys that have gone insane and are trying to kill this dog. Uh, they shoot at the dog. They accidentally hit one of them. They kill the Norwegian guys. So they don't get any answers out of them. Eventually they go check out the Norwegian camp and they realize that something horribly wrong has happened. And they find a, an alien corpse there that looks like something that is a two, two human bodies sort of melted together. Um, they bring that back and the team sort of tries to figure out what to do with the thing. One member goes mad and they have to lock him up and, uh, one member gets taken by the thing and they slowly realize that it is, it it can, uh, assimilate and emulate, uh, human bodies, uh, human people and blend in perfectly with a, with a crowd. But it was frozen under the ice when it crash landed on Earth. And, uh, yeah, it wants to uh, get out of the Arctic Research Post. It wants to get to society and assimilate all of mankind. So as the movie goes on, they keep trying to find ways to out the thing. Uh, one by one, they start to get picked off and uh, assimilated by the, th- the thing. They come up with a blood test to try and stop it. Blah, blah, blah. The, the group gets whittled down and eventually we're down to two characters after... Uh, Kurt Russell, who's McCready, uh, he kills the final formation of one of the things, and him and uh, the other last remaining member are staring at each other and are wondering if either one or the other one is the thing, and they just decide to kind of sit there and uh, see what happens in their words. Yeah, that was perfect. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I think this is going to be somewhat of a tough episode to talk about because I don't know how just to not... It feels like a lot of my notes were just, oh, this is awesome. Oh, yeah, no, this scene, it, this is a good one. Um, I have literally two complaints in the whole movie. <laughs> if you want, we can start there. Yeah, why don't we start with complaints? I can only think of... I can think of one. Um, why don't you start? So my only two complaints in the movie, two effect shots. And one of them is uh, the opening the opening of the movie, which I neglected to talk about because I forget about it every single time. And then I watch the movie and I get annoyed about it. Is there's this, it, it looks good. It's a UFO flying through Earth and then crashing into the our atmosphere. What it communicates other than they're aliens, I don't know. It's totally atonal from the rest of the movie. It feels more like something that would be in They Live or even Killer Clowns from Outer Space if it were a little bit more heightened or Goke, like something that is a little bit more uh, campier and cheesier. Um, it doesn't really blend with this strange body horror uh you know, who can I trust paranoia thriller that we get? Yeah. Aaron, what did you think of the UFO at the beginning? Like, it looks good, but it yeah, just th- doesn't fit. 
I mean, I assume it's unrelated to the rest of the movie because it doesn't say 100,000 years in the past or 100,000 years B.C. And as we find out later in the movie, the UFO that they find under the ice um, crashed there 100,000 years ago. So because it doesn't give that time cord, I have to assume that that is an unrelated UFO. I, I'm kidding. Yeah, I, I, it's, it's, it's one of those things where like – it's so disjointed from the movie. I could believe that somebody actually thinks that that, that means that another. <laughs> I think you were trying to. Coming. Yeah, I think you were trying to suss out whether that was true of what I thought of it. So. <laughs> oh no, I knew you were fucking with me, but like, I could I could believe that that someone thinks that just because it's it just it's so you're you're right. It's super forgettable because the dog starts running and your mind immediately goes somewhere else. I agree that it would be fine if it was excised, but it also doesn't bother me some people really get hung up on imagine if this ufo shot was was going on and you didn't know what's going on at all like if that if that ufo shot didn't exist and you were just watching this movie and have no idea that there's going to be aliens and i take a little bit of exception to that because i feel like between the title the thing and i'm assuming whatever trailers were playing at the time like this this doesn't feel like a terminator 2 situation where you could you could legitimately go into that movie the way they set it up not knowing that the Terminator in this iteration is now a good guy. Like, it feels to me that you know that there's aliens in, involved anyway. At the worst, I think it's just superfluous and unnecessary, but I don't think it's ruining... Uh, some people really seem to think that it just is, is ruining a twist that I don't think really exists. It doesn't exist, though, I will say... I like the mystery, uh, which, uh, you know, people will say, oh, it's a throwback to the fact that the old one was a, a 50 science fiction movie. This doesn't feel like a 50 science fiction movie, like in any way to me. They talk no. very naturalistically. Um, the way they discuss the larger human issues is much more minimal and much more stripped down. It's it's a Carpenter movie through and through. And Carpenter, for all his, his, his love of, you know, uh, old-timey westerns and old-timey sci-fi and, and horror movies he makes modern minimalist movies he doesn't he doesn't make like big <laughs> big theatrical feeling you know movies like where a character comes into a scene and just like has a big dialogue about this is what i believe and this is how i feel when carpenter does that it's because he's making fun of characters like that like in big trouble in little china for all that bluster, this movie is not that kind of throwback to the 50s sci-fi movie at all. I like this movie because it is so independent from Thing from Another World. It doesn't feel like it at all. So, so I can watch them and they scratch two completely different itches. So, yeah. So what's what's the other thing that doesn't work for you? Um, no, I, yeah. I actually do have two things. So Yeah. Oh, and also just jumping back. You, you don't see the UFO until after the dog kennel scene, which I always forget. Mm -hmm. So, like, you could just think that they found some fucking crazy demon thing in the ice. Like, it could be like a signs situation where it's actually not aliens. It's actually a demon. That's not but that's your fan theory about signs. It is. Don't don't say that like everyone agrees with it so casually. It is, it is a it is a fan theory that it's one of the five fan theories that I actually uh, think checks out like almost completely and makes the movie like two stars better yeah i i told you i told you my favorite which is uh hand shooting first in star wars like it's really fun to think about like what if he was this actually interesting character but you know it's just not on screen not on screen yeah that's that sucks i wish 
I wish Han shot first. That'd be yeah. kind of cool. No, I know, but if I, I always think that too, but then when I'm watching it, I'm like, oh, there is clearly a non-inserted laser blast. <laughs> that was clearly diegetic to the scene. I'm assuming it was a practical effect. Uh, looks looks just like, you know, part of the whole thing. But fun to think um, fun to think about to think if he about. was like this conflicted, want. scrappy villain. Uh, lazy villain, but still one that kind of turns around. But, you know, he's not. He just uh, he, he believes in stand your ground laws. Yeah, fan theories are fun. Like, what if Luke was dead the whole time? That sort of stuff. Yeah, what if um, everyone in a- any movie was dead the whole time? <laughs> the worst is when someone goes back to something that's like chipper and fun, like Grease, and they're like, I'm going to I'm gonna insert my weird fan theory into this. Yeah, what I'm if this ruin... movie's about sexual assault? <laughs> exactly. I'm going to make you mad all afternoon. Spoiler um, alert, Grease, it's not about that, but it features quite a bit of it. Yeah, just, <laughs> just, just a tinge. Grease 2, has a, Grease 2 has a particularly clever bout of sexual assault. I haven't seen it. Though it sounds like it's a prime candidate to be covered on this show. Yeah. Well, we, we're we not a B-movie podcast. We're not a cult movie podcast. We're not a genre movie podcast. We're a sexual assault cast. We've actually gotten... This is like our sixth episode in a row. Seventh, maybe? Without any uh, sexual assault? <laughs> I, it's a, it's a honestly clap. a record. Yeah, it's definitely a record. <laughs> golf clap. Um, uh, anyway. Yeah, so then the other thing that... I want to get these out of the way really quickly. Yeah. The only other thing that bothers me, because I think that these are, in my mind... The best practical special monster special effects and maybe the best special effects ever put on screen. Like, I think this movie goes head to head for Jurassic Park in terms of bringing to screen a audacious vision. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's one shot, though, in the movie that looks very cheap. And it's um, the death of Windows when Windows gets grabbed by the oh, yeah. head monster. And the head monster looks great. Don't get me wrong. Uh <laughs> It's the fact that it's clearly two dummies. Yeah, exactly. And the head monster looks looks good, but but Windows is just waggling around like no spine, and he's screaming, and you're like, you get to have one or the other. You get to have Windows waggling around like that, that he's completely limp, no screaming, or... <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it's, it's, those, that's the only, those are the only two things in the movie. Other than that, I, I like... No movie is perfect, uh, but I think that this movie is in many ways the platonic ideal for what a horror movie should be yeah uh no agree it's uh it's your favorite movie but it's it's in my like top 30 40 whatever like i actually have a list out there um i think when we did our poll of best horror movies it's my i I rate it number one uh i think with a shining number two so i mean i agree it's it's fantastic i do have you know watching it i had a couple things that i noticed this time when you know because you try to especially when you do this podcast you try to look at stuff with at least somewhat of a critical eye uh, maybe more than normal. I think just because, you know, we're talking about the movie, we're dissecting it, uh, even something we love, something we hate, uh, we want to be able to not, not, I need to find something negative about it, but okay, what works and what doesn't is kind of our, it's kind of our philosophy for approaching movies that, you know, not to lump them into basic categories, but to discuss the good stuff, discuss the bad stuff, and then hopefully come with a consensus of how it was worth your time. So, so my two things, um, and I don't think they're huge, but they are noticeable, is – so McCready has a lot of great speeches in this movie, especially the um, talking into the, the tape recorder when he's really lost all hope and saying he's going to hide this as a message. That's great. I do think his rah-rah speech, like in the middle of the movie, right after they kill um, the, the red-haired white guy – 
uh, who has who's like in the process of transforming, and he kind of does the "We're gonna find him and we're gonna do this." That felt a no, little no. what the Norris. Norse, yeah. Where, like, his arms are still left unchanged. I forget his name. Oh, no, no, no. Um, that's Bennings. Okay, so Bennings. Bennings, Bennings yeah. gets found gets found halfway through. I thought you were talking about Norris, who's nope. the, the chubbier one. Bennings is skinnier with a... He, he's got the bald, bald... Yeah, bald red hair. Anyway, so, yeah. So, Bennings is outside, and he is trying to escape before they see that he's not fully transformed, and then they burn him, and then, uh, yeah, McCready kind of gives this big... To quote Idle Hands, Kevin Costner speech uh, about how they're all going to work together and fight him and stuff like that, and the music even swells a little bit. And that it's not it's not bad, it's not terrible. It just felt a little more I don't know the right word basic. Like it, it felt like something from a less clever horror movie. Like that's the speech they give in tons of horror movies. I don't really buy necessarily that it was like an attempt to invert that because things get bad. I feel like in the moment it's sincere on Carpenter's side. It's just, it's a, it's a little too like, okay, yeah, we get it. We all need to band together and fight the aliens. It still felt, it, it felt a little heightened, but it still feels... feels scripted. It feels really scripted, I think. It, it feels heightened, but it, it still feels close enough to everyday heroism that it's not that distracting for me. Um, yeah. Because I think I think the movie is about everyday heroism and everyday competence, where, like, this movie isn't full of idiots that are just tripping over shit. Like, yeah. um, there's, there's if, an, if a character is, you know, not doing 100% the best thing they can do to kill this thing... Um, it's because they're legitimately terrified or it's in their constitution. It's not just like somebody making the absolute worst possible decision in every moment just to build dramatic tension. I kind of like the idea of McCready stepping up and just being like, you know what? I'm the drunk who doesn't give a shit about everything, anything, and you people are not up to muster. And then he kind of brings everybody's competence level up a little bit. Um, yeah, I, I just feel he I might feel, be compromised. Yeah, I just feel like he gives a lot of those speeches, um, and most of them work really well for his character. I think one of the things I love about this movie so much is that Kurt Russell is not playing a Kurt Russell type character. He's not a natural leader. He's not trying to take charge. He just is a person who, again, is good at his job in general and taking the lead in a situation where no one else really wants to step up. That one moment is the only moment that feels like he's not the reluctant Kurt Russell sort of flawed hero, but he's the just normal, I'm Kurt Russell, and I'm in charge, and I'm the lead of this movie. Um, now, again, I mean, it's a minor criticism. I think overall the scene works. It's just, it stuck out a little more to me on this watch is a little bit too much veering uh, from reluctant hero to Kurt Russell type take charge hero. Yeah, I can see that. I, I just, um, I think a lot of the, it depends on how you view Kurt Russell, like what kind of archetype you view him as. Um, I grew up with him. I mean, I guess he's always reluctant, but he's just such a variable action hero for me. Like he, yeah. he's, he's such a versatile action hero. I grew up with him as Snake Plissken. He is definitely not a Snake Plissken in this because he is not that apprehensive. Yeah, he instead seems of to like, he seems to like the people here. Like he seems to yeah. like get along with everybody like he's not warm. as much as you can when you're trapped in a base with people yeah he's not warm he's clearly no. a drunk like he, he but he's like he's a movie drunk where you're like when he says something like 
listen, I just want to like, get my shit and go back to my, my shack and get drunk. Yeah. Like, yeah, you deserve that. Like, yeah. You, you look you look sad <laughs> and you look like you're not going to be having much fun here today. Like, go, go back to your shack and get drunk. Yeah, I guess um, Reluctant Hero isn't so much because he, he plays a Reluctant Hero in a lot of especially John Carpenter related he movies. He's playing he's still playing an action hero in those other movies and here he's I think decidedly not supposed to be an action hero and that one speech is like his mini action hero moment. So again, my it, it is such a minor criticism. I think this is essentially a perfect movie, but it did feel a little too on the nose and it feared a little bit too much into to action hero stuff. The the other thing and this isn't necessarily a criticism because I think it's hard to follow the one-two punch of the kind of end of the second act of this movie, which I cannot wait to talk about, which is the operation scene or the heart attack scene, uh, followed by the blood test scene. But the climax... So I, I don't think it's possible to top those two scenes. But the climax is a little bit of a letdown. Like, the creature that they create for the final version of the thing that McCready kills is like the least interesting of all the creatures they create. It's just, you know, a weird dragon monster with a dog head coming out the stomach that, that feels less. Um, I mean, it's still a cool practical effect, but like the mon that the top head never really turns. It, it feels more modely than the rest of the, the thing special effects, which really feel vibrant and alive in a way that, it's really tough to do with the kind of weird Lovecraftian, bizarre horror stuff they're doing in this movie. And then just the throwing the dynamite and running away. It's just not it's it doesn't live up to the highs that the movie set before. It still has some great moments, but, you know, you just you, you can't top those two scenes back to back. So your climax is going to be a little bit of a letdown. I disagree because I think that the climax, obviously I'm going to disagree, but the, the climax to me is one of my favorites because it, it's, they have such a, like a, a humble motive. <laughs> like they're just like, we're just going to go in these three rooms. We're going to drop some dynamite. We're going to get the fuck out of there. So and I like all, all that. It's the, the, it's the throwing the dynamite at the least interesting practical effect. The alien in this movie I think embodies a alienness that I don't know many other movies have have touched. Like the xenomorph from Alien is uh, still sort of anthropomorphic, and it sort of feels understandable as like an animal. In this, uh, so alien, like you can't understand its motivations. The way it fucks with you and the way it fucks with its victims is so alien and so strange that like I'm so blown away by the amorphous quality of these things and how they have like tentacles that move and how it's it's just like this this conglomeration of pieces that's still trying to figure out what it is so like every time that we get to see a, a new alien that's anything broader than just like a basic you know human with an open mouth kind of thing um i just it blows me away and this thing has like a fucking chest with these big bulging eyes that just like snap back a membrane and then yeah it opens up but a it's a dog it's just a, a dog, dog yeah but that's like a visual reminder of what i think is the best special effects moment earlier in the movie which is the dog kennel scene the dog yeah. kennel scene is where it's just like 
this thing can take any fucking form. Well, we'll see. So, yeah, again, it is a minor complaint. It's not even a negative complaint. It's just the one thing that doesn't work as well as the rest of it works, which I do want to clarify. But I would uh, have preferred if I would have preferred if their final thing was like one last punch in the face, though it was appropriately terrifying enough to look at when McCready says, well, yeah, fuck you, too. It feels emotionally so resonant for me it yeah yeah that part works um i i guess i guess just think of think of that month think of that version of the thing like switched with my favorite version of the thing which is the one in the dog kennel scene that you don't get that good of a look at which is like when it's this weird amorphous blob thing with like an eyeball and then that other like almost it looks like a weird alien venus flytrap comes it's like out a flower bud. yeah and it just has all this other weird stuff it's this like unknowable glob of parts that's my favorite like that's my favorite thing special effect and i think a bigger version of that would be so much weirder and scarier and freakier than like again I'm, this sounds reductive and i'm not i don't mean it this way but i think that that that's freakier than like dragon head dog head combo. Yeah, but that 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 creature is compromised. Um, if you notice the scene where it pulls in the the plunger for the dynamite, they you do a little stop motion animation. There's not really that much of it in the movie that's noticeable like that. They use a little bit of stop motion animation for a tentacle that pulls the plunger down into the underground. It looks really cool because it's just a very animated effect originally they you can watch it on youtube and on the special features originally they had a stop motion animation version of the final monster and it just looked kind of shitty which makes sense because it's weird that the top head the it's weird that the top head doesn't move it just yeah this is a compromised version of that he liked he liked the idea of this flesh and blood thing god i mean yeah i can see that see so actually so before we continue now talking about the rest of the movie which it's just going to be, this is amazing, this is amazing, this is amazing, and hopefully maybe why it works. Um, I did want to ask you a question, Peter, because it's definitely true of me. I can't imagine how this won't be true for you, but this is this is definitely the movie that you've watched the most prior to recording this episode of the podcast of all the stuff we've covered, right? Oh, definitely. Yeah, uh, I, was, I was debating between this and Dark City, but my Dark City watching fell off quite a bit uh, from high school and college where the thing I've probably seen it two other times this year because I just watched the thing a lot. Yeah. It's, it's a weird movie because at the time it was so poorly reviewed. It was just seen as this like miserable horror movie. That's just like not any fun. And, but for me, like the sort of relentless introduction of a monster, we have to kill this fucking thing. Like the the sort of relentless pace of it is so thrilling to me every single time I watch it. Like I do not know what critics were smoking at the time to, to put this movie down. It's, it's very much, it was released, I believe the same day as Blade Runner, which has a similar story where Blade Runner And like two weeks before or after E.T., yeah, 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 yeah. Which uh, the you know the story. I don't know if it's, it's sort of apocryphal, but the story is that you know people wanted a friendlier alien, and this movie is the most sinister, awful, purely yeah. sinister version of an alien that you could possibly come up with. And ET. I blame like, Reagan. I blame Reagan for this and a lot of things. Uh, yeah, and also if you if you were born say before 1975 and didn't go see this in the theaters, fuck you. <laughs> yeah i don't get I like I, it's it's just 
bums me out to think that like because even at the time people were saying like the special effects are pretty cool and people liked kurt russell at the time and like it's not like it's so challenging on like a contextual level that like you know audience couldn't handle what this movie had to say yeah why weren't people like this movie's fucking terrifying because it's one of the few movies left in in the world that still scares the shit out of me yeah, and like there's people like Ebert who I normally like, but like he was like, "Ooh, these these special effects that are supposed to be super gross and alien, too gross for me." Yeah, he <laughs> called it a barf bag movie, which is like really reductive compared to what the movie is. And obviously, like I know how reviewers work, where they like they go see the movie. <laughs> They have to go write the review it that night. Sounded super like, sinister. No, no. <laughs> I know they were, they work. They have to go write the movie review that night after seeing the thing. Like, uh, no matter what the thing is. Um, and I, I have sympathy for that, but I just don't get why there weren't reading a lot of reviews at the time. Like, there's obviously these, like, douchebag reviewers who are just like, the masses will gobble this up. Like, somebody called this, like... A great, I think it was Vincent Canby called it like a great moron movie. I'm like, get off your fucking high horse. It's such a weird line to draw where it makes you like sound anti reviewer to talk about old reviews like this, but like they seem just like review, like negative reviews of Blade Runner or whatever. They seem insane in retrospect to me. Well, I just don't understand how you could, I mean, how you could not watch a scene like the blood test scene. I remember watching it and I don't think I knew about it because I, I saw this movie probably like 17. And I watched that scene and I was like, whatever that feeling you get when you realize you've watched something iconic, that was the feeling I got watching that scene. Like, this is a scene and a concept that it, that just reached its pinnacle with this movie. And you know that immediately watching this movie – and not shockingly, there's been so many, even if it's not a full thing ripoff, that idea of testing something uh, to determine who's who or, I mean, everything from like, that was like half of Star Trek Deep Space Nine was about like testing blood for um, for the Dominion, the shapeshifters to tell if they're who's human and who's not. Like, this has been, this little like moment and scene has been expanded out to so much fiction and you you feel it watching it. And so the idea that, the reviewers, even if you're 1982, just watch something that iconic and that's going to be that much of a template for for like movies and TV shows and art in general and went, boo, what a bunch of losers who'd like this movie. I just don't generally jive with the sort of let's shit on audience in a review. I saw this movie for the first time when I was 13. I actually started playing the video game first, which is weird. Apparently, I read this, apparently like GameStops and certain game stores would give you a DVD copy of this game for free if you pre-ordered the game, which is really cool. That was only if you had an uncle that worked at Nintendo. Yeah. <laughs> it does kind of sound like bullshit now because most pre-order bonuses are like, Batman's got a new shirt. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you got that new shirt. I don't even get that. <laughs> they can't be they can't be shirts, they call them skins. They call them skins. Yeah, Text- get your new skins. <laughs> get your texture packs. Yeah, you um, can't you can't say shirts. Batman has a new outfit. Because it might confuse people into thinking they're actually getting a shirt, which would yeah. be valuable. Oh, this is uh, oh. oh just, it goes- it's slightly bluer. <laughs> uh oh, it goes on it goes on my video game character, not me. Uh-oh. Okay. And I, and I can't see his shirt anyways because his cape, I, I have the back view because it's a third-person <laughs> game and his and the cape covers his shirt, so... Quick, rotate um, the camera! 
<laughs> I want to see. I want to see my new shirt. The the idea that like a whole generation of kids could be and the game was endorsed and said was a canonical. was a legitimate sequel. Yeah, yeah, by by John Carpenter. I don't necessarily jive with that. I liked the game. I never finished it because it got really hard. I that was how I got introduced to it. Actually, it was playing the game first, which is which is interesting. And then I saw the movie and I was just like floored by the special effects, but didn't entirely understand the monster. That might really that might be part of the reason that reviewers at the time didn't respond to the movie because they just couldn't understand the monster quickly because it is a very complex monster it is it's just but it's also so terrifying that idea of hey one particle of this is all that needs to survive it's so alien to every idea you have of like how to conquer or destroy life yeah it's it's a great movie for that reason it works on both a simple level and a complex level um and, and you can view it as just a simple everyday paranoia thriller that's just about like human beings just don't trust each other or you can view it as this uh, more macro commentary on all of mankind and how you know diplomacy is doomed to fail against a bigger threat because people just don't know how to communicate capably or they don't know how to follow orders or whatever you want to pull from it on a more macro level. It's it's a, the ideal sort of uh, thinker horror movie where it works if you're not thinking and it works if, if you are. My first experience was just, you know, going through classics in high school and uh, I'd seen the thing from another world. I was, you know, kind of going, I think I probably watched this Big Trouble in Little China and Escape from New York in like rapid succession. And this is, you know, I like those other two movies quite a bit, especially Big Trouble in Little China. We'll talk about my heretical views on Escape from New York at a later date, which I really do like, but I think I think Escape from L.A. is better. Um, the most insane thing I've ever heard. Anyway. Uh, uh, also, growing up, Escape from New York was, uh, it, like, I think it replaced Ghostbusters. I think it was like Ghostbusters, then Escape from New York, and then The Thing overtook it at some point. Is my favorite movie. Uh, yeah, well, then, of course, you would you would have a problem with that, with that statement. But anyway. Uh, <laughs> I'm just yes, a carpenter so, guy. So... Yeah, Carpenter's one of the few directors that I've seen. I've seen every one of his theatrical movies. Um, I, I'm missing a couple of Masters of Horror episode and the TV Elvis movie, but otherwise I've seen uh, – I and I capped it with The Fog last year as my first uh, Spooktober. Viewing. Oh, nice. So, I and, love The Fog. Oh, yeah. So fucking good. Uh, but – so it was it was one of those experiences though watching it that it was like oh yeah I just saw a fucking amazing classic movie that I'm going to watch over and over again it was one of those instant realizations that you just saw something amazing and it was going to be a favorite movie viewers for the rest of your life a feeling you don't I envy my uh, college and high school self where you're at that point in your life where you have a lot more free time and a lot more freed um in general to just kind of sit and watch three or four movies all day which I I didn't have when I was um, you know prior to like junior high and you're just kind of catching up on all these movies you didn't get a chance to see and you're just watching these like fantastic like life staying with you movies one after the other like now i'm watching aliens now i'm watching robocop now i'm watching you know and so that was a feeling that felt way more common back then and stuff like the thing still stood out now it's super rare i think to get that instantly like well this is gonna be my one of my favorite movies forever which which i think is why so many people reacted so positively to something like fury road because that was a movie that was like yep okay 
I'm never going to stop watching this. A lot of film people, especially, had a sort of recognition that Fury Road had all the elements of a movie that would get tarnished like a Blade Runner or a thing, like a movie that needed 20 years to be appreciated. And we were all collectively (laughs) grabbed onto Fury Road and we were like, no, 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 no. It's going to be appreciated right now. Yeah. This thing just pops right out of your nightmares. This is amorphous creep of a thing. And it, it scratched that itch for me very young where I was like, holy shit, why aren't all horror movies like this? Why can't all horror movies just like grab you and never let you go? And you need to see more ways that this this creature can manifest itself and more ways that this creature can express itself. It just was like an instantly I can watch this movie at, at any time, which is not true of you know, something that might be a little bit more dour or serious minded. And this has a lot of serious thoughts going on, but it still is like thrilling and gripping and suspenseful. And, you know, it's probably the 50th time I watched it for this show. And I was still like the fucking jump scares still got me. Uh, you know, I'm sitting there on the edge of my seat, like just waiting for moments to happen or yeah, like, but, is it, is so, it right now? Is it right now? I know it's going to happen when, you know, when's the exact moment that that chest bursts open and the blood it, test it, scene st- got me this time. Where the, yeah, the it gets me every time. I, every time. That is a perfectly <laughs> set up moment. I always prepare for it. Uh, yeah. And like you were saying, one of the reasons that this movie is so good at presenting its different version of an alien is the special effects are fucking... Yeah, I can't think of a better practical effect. Yeah, Rob Bottin is the guy, that the mastermind behind it. Stan Winston's studio worked on Jurassic Park and every other big special effects movie. Um, Stepped in to help Rob Bottin because he exhausted himself throughout the course of making this. He had this like team of 40 people under him, but he was an ambitious dude who also had trouble like handing off responsibilities. So he would like inspect everything himself. And like, there's a love and craftsmanship in the effects that he put into them that are unassailable. He was apparently 22 when he started working on this movie, which is insane to me because it feels like a movie made by you know, a craftsman of, of decades and decades, like an, an elder Stan Winston. And also you have to, you have to give Dean Cundey the, the director of photography some credit because the scenes have to be shot and you know lit well to show off these effects well but they so easily could have looked rubbery and terrible and it's really hard to nail that sort of like this is flesh and it's elastic like flesh but it's not rubber it's really hard to nail that that look on camera and rob Bottin it had terrifying ability to to pull that off if you ever get a chance to um watch the 90 minute uh, documentary that was produced for the dvd release it is it is not on the blu-ray unfortunately it will be on again the shout factory blu-ray that is coming out uh i think the day we release this podcast uh so so shout factory please give us some money um, but, uh, it's a great, it's a great 90 minute, like full retrospective documentary. And Rob Bodine is, uh, just, he's so great in those interviews talking about feeling like he was in over his head, but like still putting together all this stuff. And then, you know, he gets a lot of love from everyone about what the final product looked like. John Carpenter, all the other people that worked on the movie. So, um, if you're a big fan of hour and a half retrospectives and are picking up the new Blu-ray of the thing, or have an old DVD copy saved specifically for that documentary, like I do, you should absolutely watch it. Because he he's just so fun to hear him talk about this kind of insane special effects that are so unique, you know, 30 plus years later. 
Yep, nowadays with these like fully formed CGI monsters. The thing I say, I've said before as well, is that, you know, if you see a wolf in a movie that's CGI, like and then the extra You say cool. it, but I keep cutting it out. So maybe this yeah. will stay in. If you see a wolf in a, in a movie, you're like, I know what a wolf looks like. That CGI wolf is not realistic looking. You know, sometimes CGI looks looks good specifically because it's sort of inhuman. A lot of effects in Avatar look amazing because you're like, I don't know what a, you know, a sentient light tree branch looks like. So that looks great. <laughs> There's a sort of tactility to the, the effects in this movie that will never fade with time the way that, you know, even just the way a creature is lit in a movie, the way a CGI creature reflects light will. The creatures in this are just jaw-droppingly amazing. You're like, how the fuck did you do that? Yeah, what's your favorite iteration? I, I kind of already said mine that I love that you only get it for a few seconds, which probably adds to the creepiness, which is the amorphous blob with different parts all in one moment uh, in, the, in the dog kennel scene when they go in to shoot it. Dog kennel is my favorite. Here's a, sort of a side path to this, uh, to the dog kennel scene. Um, I have a uh, husky mix. <laughs> so watching this movie took on a particular resonance this time. And uh, the dog kennel scene in particular really, really like creeped me the fuck out and fucked with me and it made me realize that's just something that horror people crave like they crave that sort of challenge let's see if you can rattle me and the sound effects in the dog scene totally freaked me the fuck out so sorry is that is that your favorite iteration of the thing as a monster or like one of your favorite horror scenes it's both so okay. it's, it's my favorite it's my favorite iteration of the monster particularly the fact that it's this sort of tentacled beast that's trying to figure out what it is because it's it's being challenged by the humans behind it but it's also you know halfway between dog and thing it's, it's i guess it's like halfway between dog and thing and dog because yeah. it's a dog trying to t eat other dogs and turn into it but there's a moment where it wraps its tentacles around a dying dog and like tries to pull it in it bothered me so much this watch something about the timing just like it just felt like a real dog was being strangled yeah and and i have a dog that looks like a cross between a german shepherd and a husky so who was who was who was staring at us the entire time we were watching that scene i should add yep. um i don't i don't like when dogs die in movies my wife fucking hates it it's how we found the website does the dog die.com because she she is you know she, we have three dogs i totally get it she stopped movies and it like had to work up the courage to go back after a dog dies she'd rather you know not see it cover her ears uh or at least be prepared for it uh so this this movie was a tough watch for her she yeah, uh, should not even... enjoy it yeah, I didn't even make my girlfriend who I live with and I, I own the dog with, uh, the husky with. Uh, I uh, refused to let her watch any of it. <laughs> I like she... that you start with, well, I didn't make my girlfriend watch it. I didn't make her yeah. watch it, Peter. She, she already doesn't like horror movies and she was like, you know, I'll, I'll be home tonight. What are you doing? I'm like, I'm watching a movie and I'm going to watch it before you get home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my my wife hates uh, the two things she hates most in movies is ambiguous endings and uh, harm coming to dogs. So this uh, does this the dog die claims <laughs> 16 dogs die in this movie. <laughs> yep. And I forgot. I thought it was I thought it was over. Like, and I'm like, no, nope. that's it. Nope. I forgot that now you're, you're going to see an axe driven into one. <laughs> Whoops. More, more to come. Yeah, but I mean, it's it's effective. 
It's definitely it's definitely squirm inducing. Just the second where the dog starts kind of popping open is like, and the dogs slowly get more and more freaked out. It's kind of this great little uh, horror moment. You know, John Carpenter knows what he's doing. He knows that people love dogs and huskies are beautiful dogs. And let's not just see him killed, but let's see him like ripped apart by an unknowable beast. And the thing is, there's like a dog that's trying to escape the kennel uh, by chewing through the th- the wire. And then the moment that Clark, the, the dog, the dog owner guy, is going to check on the kennel. You're like, oh, shit, you're going to get murdered. And then two dogs jump out in a really great jump scare. Because it's not the thing. It's two yeah. dogs just like, holy shit, I need to get out of here. And if you know anything about like those sort of sled dogs, like they are so loyal, they would never knock over their owner like that once they're mature. Well-trained sled dogs would never, ever like knock over the owner like that. Like th- that's ha- that adds to the terror because you're like, these dogs are so well-trained. They love him so much. And they're just like, get the fuck out of the way. Yeah, but they still, they bring him back. They escaped, but uh, they bring them right back to the kennel. And then right back to the, where they're going to get murdered. I'm I'm so worried we're going to run out of time on this episode because there's so much great stuff to, to, to talk about. So one thing I do want to make sure that we have a lot of room for, I want to get to right now, is the one-two punch of heart attack scene followed by immediately to the blood testing scene. Yeah. So the heart attack scene is fascinating because you, they take a character right in the middle of the movie who hasn't had a whole lot of personality. He hasn't had any big outbursts actually when offered a role of authority, kind of like shirks it. And that's another manifestation of the thing that the infected people don't necessarily know that they're infected. Yeah, it's, it's fun to parse out because if it's an exact replica, then they have their brains, they have their thoughts, they have that stuff. Like, is it just a cellular thing waiting to activate when its host body is in danger? Almost a version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Or is it like a possession thing where it's not a virus that's sitting still waiting to activate and attack the cells and transform and defend itself but a it's it's using all of its memories and thoughts to blend in and is more consciously uh behaving in certain ways the scary part is like is thinking like when does the person lose consciousness yeah when when do you stop being you does that happen once the moment you're infected does that never happen are you forced to just be like a ride-along like in a possession like this thing just use your body as a means to grab other bodies like that's pretty pretty rough um but yeah so norris who's a uh sort of a quiet spoken dude a chubbier dude there he's like clutching his chest in one scene and he has a heart attack and you genuinely don't think anything is is awry here you just think it's a heart attack you're like well, I guess a character's just going to die from a heart attack. Like, this is a very stressful situation. It's brought into that room. And then, uh, Aaron, what happens? <laughs> well, they're trying to perform CPR uh, with with the, what do you call them, the electric things? Yeah, the electric things. The paddles, the paddles. You went to medical school, right? Yeah, I mean, they don't tell you names. They just tell you how to use them. Yeah, they're like, ooh, ooh, this this part's the shocky part. This part's the part you touch. Yeah, that's really – I mean, you just need to place it stuff. You don't need to be a medical expert on what all things are called, Peter. It's it's true. Yeah, it's true. They, you actually just keep shocking them until they tell, the person tells you to stop. Yeah, like no one cared when I was performing heart surgery that I just called it. I mean, I learned it now, but at the time I just called it, give me the pulsating red thing in the center area. <laughs> they just assumed that you were a transfer doctor from Eastern Europe. 
Uh, no, they just they knew that it was important that I could fix things, not name things. <laughs> I'll fix your heart up good. Yeah, I'll fix I'll fix the red pumper up. Uh, so yeah, so they're they're trying to put the paddles on. They're trying to bring them back to life. Uh, I didn't the first time I saw this. I definitely did not expect it to turn into the twist. It's not telegraphed. I, you know, I think it's a it's a subversion that happens in horror movies where, you know, you're waiting for the other shoe to drop and then this terribly mundane normal life event occurs instead. Like people use that all the time in horror movies to to kind of divert dread. So the moment where they're trying to bring him back to life while there's all this chaos, McCready's getting yelled at by Childs and he's got his flamethrower and his dynamite. Like you you just think it's the whole dynamic of someone's dying unrelated to the thing. Meanwhile, someone's trying to save their life. The group is breaking down. They're yelling at each other. And then all of a sudden, uh, <laughs> the chest opens up, uh, immediately bites off the hands of the person using the electric paddles. And... Uh, then the chaos turns into a completely different type of chaos where it's no longer the presence of a potential threat, but the threat is right in the midst of them all along. And now they're trying to solve that. So they, you know, blow the flamethrower on, on the, on the guy in the center. Meanwhile, his head falls off or falls off is the wrong word, uh, moves off his body. <laughs> Cause it's uh, defending itself. It's defending itself. Cause it, you know, it, when you have a, uh, when you have a alien like this, you don't need full parts. You just need a section or a component of them to to break away and save themselves. So the head uh, the head falls off, lands on the floor, then pulls it, uses its antenna, or it's not its antenna. It uses its tentacle to slowly pull itself towards uh, the table, and then at that point, it sprouts spider legs. Its eyes pop out. And it scurries away, leading to also the funniest moment of the movie, where they think they've killed the alien again, and then hear a little bit of scurrying of feet, and turn around and see the spider, to which, uh, Windows? No, it's not Windows. Uh, it's, uh, what's his fucking name? The stone, the burned out dude. To which, to which the burnout dude says, like everyone in the audience is thinking... You've got to be fucking kidding me. <laughs> yeah, I love that moment so much because you're just like, oh, so this is what happens even when you do fight back effectively. Like, it's also necessary. It's necessary to make that scene effective because we don't know the components of what the thing can do fully at that point. Like we've heard it described, but this is an example of like how far it can go to extradite himself from a situation and then use its transformative powers to escape. But it is ridiculous on its face that this head grew spider legs and tentacle eyes and started walking away. So you almost need that character to reflect the audience's sense of disbelief to go back and ground the whole thing. Yep, I I, I agree entirely. I think that um, John Carpenter is very selective with how he just uses humor in this movie. It's all pitch black humor because it's a very dark movie. But John John Carpenter's selective use of humor is always like a sort of <laughs> audience surrogate moment it feels like or it's used as a really great teaching moment for a character like at the beginning McCready is introduced as a dude who's just like drinking J&B scotch and playing computer chess and then the computer wins for presumably the thousandth time and he just pours his scotch into the computer to, to kill it 
that tells you everything you need to know about McCready. Like he's like, only played one chess game. He's only played one chess <laughs> game and he doesn't get the rules. Yeah. It doesn't matter if something is superior to him. He will find a workaround so he can feel like he won, which is kind of the story of him against the thing. Like he's like, you know what? You want to you want to throw your shit at me? Like I I'm not going to just lay over for lay down for you or pretend like this is some sort of fun game. Like I'm going to come at you with everything I've got. The same thing happens like later in the movie when the group sort of betrays McCready and thinks yeah. that he's well really the thing is setting a trap to make them think that McCready, the strongest member of the group, the thing is very smart, so he's trying to set it as the strongest member of the group is uh infected. Um McCready kills Clark and threatens to kill uh, Childs um, just to defend himself. And that's that's McCready in a nutshell. Like, he cares about these people, but at the end of the day, he just wants to fucking live. He just wants to, like, survive, overcome this sort of, like, macho trial of who he is. Yeah, and he's not going to feel guilty during the next scene or uh, the scene right before it, I guess, uh, where someone just came at me with a knife. So if I need to shoot him... That's justified. He was coming at me. He doesn't have time to panic or worry or realize what he's done, even though they were friends. He understands, like, look, this is a situation, and everybody keep, better keep their fucking heads on straight, or things are going to turn bad, and you're not going to blame me for it. Yeah, exactly. I'm not going to take the blame just because uh, you guys, yeah, lost your lost your fucking head. And I, I love McCready in this movie because he reflects, I, he reflects like what all of us wish that we would be in a situation like this, mm-hmm. both in good and bad ways. He's an okay negotiator when, uh, is it Windows gets, tries to grab the shotgun? Uh, yeah. Yeah, he talks Windows down. But other than that, he's pretty much just like, these are the orders, take it or leave it, like, you're going to be forced into this box. Like, I, I I won't abide mutiny. Yeah, and, and it's also, I mean, why him and Childs are so good is because they're really the only two that keep a fully clear head, I feel like. Like, there's definitely bicker, bickering between the two of them, but everyone else usually has, like, a panic moment at some point in the movie, and those two don't. Like, they... They are at odds and have debates about what the best way to do it and get backed into corners and take action. But they they're never like necessarily scared of the thing itself. They just want the fucking problem to be solved. Yep. And, you know, you kind of understand when Childs um, turns on McCready because you're like, yeah, anybody rational, reasonable would like. Maybe we should just torture you because the risk is too fucking large. Which McCready would do in the opposite situation, which I think the the movie underlined. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And um, it's an interesting thing because I... the movie <laughs> It is. is very much it about, is an interesting thing. It's an interesting thing because the movie is clearly has like an undertone of like what like macho leadership means. But like the fact that there, there was originally supposed to be one woman cast in the movie and then she got pregnant and had to drop out. And then they replaced whoever it was with a man. I, I don't know exactly which which uh, role that was supposed to be. That was but, before uh, FMLA. That was before FMLA, yes. <laughs> that seems like the worst. Like I know Carpenter has a great, a pretty good record at least of like uh, strong female characters and, you know, making movies that are like geared towards them. So I, I'm not going to judge him for not having a female character in this movie particularly, but hearing that is almost almost makes me want to judge him because the fact that he was going to cast a female and then she got pregnant and then was like, okay, well, 
you're losing your job to a male counterpart because you you chose this time to have a baby. That feels grosser. It's weird because like, okay, so I know in 1982 what the producers would have probably demanded was and the last thing this movie needs is a love, you know, relationship. I mean, between the thing and someone, then you got a little possession vibe going. Oh yeah, the the last thing the last thing this movie needs, McCready and some woman in her bunk, and he's like, and, he, and he's like, how do I know you can trust you? And she's like, you can't tell just from looking at me. And then they end up sleeping together, and McCready takes the risk for some reason, um, and she ends up being fine. Like, the last thing this movie needed was a scene like that. Or like a reflective well, of AIDS or something. Yeah, like exactly. AIDS allegory. But the movie could have had just like what what carpenter has done before which is just like there are strong female characters just fucking hanging out in his movies like prince of darkness the lead character of the movie is a strong female character and she's not sexualized in that manner she's a fully formed human character ghosts of mars is a movie that i really like everybody else fucking hates that that movie is just chock full of strong female characters like before or, or just do a this is after 19 you know 1979's alien which is just hey it's okay to just have a crew of people where anyone could be played by a man or a woman for the most part um which is yeah, basically how how really scott cast that movie yeah ripley was a man i think or originally supposed to be a man in the script and then they were like why can't it be a woman yeah and then we got one of the best horror performances of all time and it i don't think alien would be it would be still very very good but i don't think it would be nearly as good if it wasn't for ripley no and sigourney weavers yeah a big part of that so again you know i'm i know it's a criticism and in general of course i mean if you've listened to our show before um you know that representation is an important thing but you also it's it's a it's a it's a concern on a much broader level than saying movies like the thing or reservoir dogs or you know, it's it's fine that these movies exist. Bridget uh, Taylor, our previous guest, said it best, I think, a couple episodes ago, where it's not a problem that these movies exist. It's that no no female counterparts exist that are like this, which which is the perfect way to to put it. So yeah, it's not about individual examples, and also this movie is thirty four years old. Um, it's not about individual examples. It's about the general trends that happen. We're allowed to point to the examples to highlight the trend the trend is very troubling that you know it's it's really hard to have like a movie where a woman gets to do some shit and isn't just like sexualized object for that like you know broadens out another male or a male character like yeah it's it's really tough and also this movie's 34 years ago We, we know john carpenter has a good track record with women the fog and halloween like before and after this movie so like it's it's it stands out yes but it's also like i just don't think it's one of the movie's priorities yep and i think it's okay to say why don't they make female versions of the thing that's okay to say um and and that is even though it's using the thing as an example, I don't think that's a criticism of the thing. These are just like all male led movies that there's just not as much of an uh, analogy or counterpart to 
Uh, you know, we, we said it before on this show, like, uh, not to go back to the Ghostbusters well, but it's a great example because there's it, there's just not that many big budget studio action comedy movies that star for women that's not about them being women. It's just about – there just happen to be women doing these jobs and, you know, we, we talked about a couple episodes ago and it was like, okay, we'll name another one of those and there isn't one and yeah. people flipped out about that. So, again, it's, it's not a criticism of The Thing or Reservoir Dogs or Glenn Gary. Glenn Ross to say, why isn't there a female version of this? It's just an easy example to use. Anyway. I mean, that's not really fair because the chess computer is played by a woman. So, I mean. Oh, never mind then. They got one in there. Yeah. (laughs) Technically okay. And, well, except that Kurt Russell murders her in cold blood. (laughs) (laughs) She gets fridged. Yep. Um, so that adds a different if, if that's what we're going with now we have to talk about something completely different yeah, about how like, Kurt Russell is a monster I can't think of a better allegory for a uh, a woman uh, in the modern workplace that uh, she tops a man at his own game and then he's just like well the game's over because I broke all the rules yep I'm gonna set her on fire now. I'm the victor. And now I'm the victor. Um, yeah. So yeah, we need to get into the blood scene, the blood testing scene. I don't even know what to say about it. Besides that jump scare that they execute is so perfect. It's so fucking perfect because they're ratcheting it up the paranoia. They're turning up the intensity, and then you they kind of focus on who you think it's going to be, which is the captain. And while Kurt Russell is yelling at the captain that we're going to save you last because you're probably the thing, he's casually tapping the the lit wire, the heated up wire, into the blood of someone that no one thinks is the thing. And boom, the blood leaps like three feet in the air into his face. And then everything just evolves to chaos. It's an awesome misdirect. It's, yeah. it's, it's an incredible moment. And then you get to see the blood like sort of crawl and shimmer across the floor to get away from him. Like, ugh, what, a, what, a, what an awesome moment. So the, Yeah, and if that wasn't enough, they also have the whole thing of everyone's tied to the fucking thing. Yep, yep. And then once that scene is over, I love that Gary's like, I know you guys have been through a lot. I don't want to spend the rest of this winter tied to this fucking couch. Yeah, I also love that after that, when he tests them and they're positive, he starts, they start jump cutting to those people being let out, which is a very fun, dark, darkly comic moment where, okay, well, uh, the plan as a whole is still solid but based on what just happened we're gonna make some minor tweaks where we let everyone out immediately and the way they underplay that with just like visual comedy and cues is so so good yeah yeah and also like let's let's jump back a little bit the reason that these scenes work is because i think carpenter contrary to what a lot of reviews at the time said i think carpenter drew out these characters uh, and their personalities really, really well. It's just a team of professionals, and they all have their own little quirks. They all have their job. A lot of what they're doing, if you're, if they're not, if they don't have a big, you know, complex personality, a lot of what they're doing is in pursuit of their job. So, like Fuchs is a doctor, and Fuchs isn't, you know, super deep, but Fuchs get has some really great line readings. Fuchs has a moment where he, he, he McCready sneaks up on him, and there's this beautiful split diopter shot of McCready standing in the in the background, and it make, makes you realize like, hey, maybe McCready is infected. Um, <laughs> and, and and Fuchs grabs a fucking like acid vial to be like, I, I guess I'm throwing this on McCready if he moves any closer, and and it's. 
Carpenter does a ton of those little characteristic things, and that's why the the blood test scene works so well because you understand everybody's personality. Yeah, it do, it does a great job of sketching them out. Even that uh, that what's his name would go go stab happy as like vengeance for the dogs. The way he's like trying to calmly Clark. placate Clark. Yeah, the way that he would calmly placate McCready and be like, yeah, no, I love your plan, while slowly trying to like turn on him because he's he's not trustful based on the all of his his dogs dying. Um, I There's think a also horrifying shot where one of them, I think it's McCready, shoots one of the dogs that's just getting choked by the thing. Like it mm-hmm. hasn't been, isn't really being assimilated, and it's before they really understand things. And uh, McCready just blows this dog apart and it's horrifying to watch. Clark like grabs the shotgun because he's like, at that point, he's like, listen, I know you have to kill this monster, but do you also have to kill the only thing that really matters to me? Like his job, yeah. his, his his role in the movie perfectly blends with his character. Yep. Uh, I think Carpenter's thesis, uh, besides, besides showing that everyone was good at his job, I think Carpenter's other point was like, look, if you get enough white guys and they all grow beards one of them is gonna kind of look like richard dreyfus and that (laughs) that thesis also plays out perfectly because blair looks exactly like richard dreyfus that's true actually that's the thesis of my life that if enough white guys are around you and they have a beard one of them's gonna look uh like richard dreyfus uh which has also been proven true uh at my work right now (laughs) there's a guy that did not look like richard dreyfus guy i work with uh, he's, he has a beard. He now looks quite a lot like Richard Dreyfus. So the, the Dreyfuses are assimilating, is what yep. you're saying? Yeah, it's the invasion of the Dreyfus snatchers. Um, <laughs> so I, I think there's a couple big moments we still need to talk about, and then we can go into some stray thoughts. Let's just get to it. Let's let's talk about the very end of the movie. Some podcasts would save that for for the end. Fuck you. We say to those podcasts. I want to talk about stuff when we want to talk about it. Yeah, yeah. Let's do it. So I love the ambiguous nature of the ending. The idea that. Even if they stopped them short term, it's going to get us. And that's such a great concept because it can wait 100,000 years and it just needs a cell and it's going to slowly win. And hell, the the climate change to release the spaceship to begin with, it could change even more dramatically uh, to make that happen. So it's the idea that on a long enough time scale, the alien's going to win and the planet is doomed. But. In the in the in a smaller version of just those two sitting there, and there's a lot of well, which one of them still the thing? Uh, this this viewing actually reminded me that the answer could easily be neither of them, which doesn't get talked about as much. It's more um, potent that way. Yeah, but I it does. Feel- canon. I believe that's canon. Is that Childs freezes to death, and that McCready lives? Um, not that it, it. That's all extra textual, mind you. Um, but Carpenter has said that that's canon. But you know, I, I well, like. I like believing in, you know, whatever ending I come up with whenever I watch the movie. I believe something different every single time I watch it. Yeah, the breath thing, first of all, is complete garbage because you can see Charles's breath constantly. Yeah. I, there's like one moment where you can't, but when he's standing up and then later on when he's sitting down, there's like one specific scene that you can't or one specific shot, I should say. The rest of it, you can see his breath just as much. So I think that's garbage. Interestingly enough, if you've seen the prequel, which is supposed to be canon, I don't know if Carpenter said it's canon, um, it actually does answer at least one of them who is not the thing, which is Childs, because they make a big point in that movie about the thing not being able to like put any sort of metal in its body because they do something with fillings and some other stuff. Like That's the one thing that the thing cannot replicate. Uh, including uh, metal that is like inserted inside them, and uh, Childs has an earring, a metal earring, 
which if if you think that the 2001 movie is actually part of this canon that you could say oh well that means he's definitely not the thing that doesn't necessarily mean the mccready is but it it means that Childs definitely is not. Yeah, all these sources are so separate that I, I just go by the straight text. And the text speaks to me in different ways every single time I watch it. So what, what like, did it speak to you this time? Because actually, I, I found the most compelling thing this time that neither of them were the thing. Yeah, this time I thought that Childs had been away too far for McCready to guarantee that he could pull off a blood test. Childs easily could have been compromised. I think like an alternate ending in this movie that would be way less thoughtful, but like would be satisfying on some level is if McCready just decides to blow them both up. McCready, knowing that he's he's not infected, is just like, I just don't know if I can trust you and then blows them both up. Like that was sort of what I was thinking about as like an alternate ending. I'm not saying I, I like the regular ending best of all the, the alternate endings that I've thought of. But um, the idea is like he just can't trust him even enough to perform a blood test. Like th- there's just nothing there. And like even if even if a child is completely clean, like his trust in people will never be. Yeah. And I, I thought that was, so that's kind of why I thought that this time in the past, I've always kind of assumed that Childs was the thing. Uh, part of that is probably just because like, well, Kurt Russell can't be the thing because he's Kurt Russell. Um, and just also the, the stuff I heard forever about the breath thing, which probably, you know, seeped into my reading of the ending. Uh, but actually, this time I liked the concept of that neither of them were the thing. And I liked it conceptually because it me- this movie is dripping with paranoia, as you said. And I love the idea that in these, these, these two people are definitely going to die. And in their last moments, the thing has taken that human trust so far. And they're just two humans sitting there, ostensibly have accomplished their mission. And they're just going to die watching each other closely cold and alone together that's how they're gonna fade off into oblivion just finishing yeah. a bottle of j and b you know what's really telling to me mccready knows that the thing can infect you with a single cell and mccready still passes childs that bottle of j and b and it like presumably will take the bottle back afterwards like yeah that's that's really telling to me that he's just like Hey, man, no matter what, like, we're both freezing out here. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's... Be, did he say it's supposed to be 100 below? I don't, I don't remember. He said in six hours it'll be 100 below, and I wanted to look that up and see if that's actually a thing. Because that, um, that sounds like an insane, like, Mars number. The last thing, the last major thing that I feel like we need to talk about, uh, this is already going to be a, probably a longer episode, but it is a thing, so, you know. Fuck you, potential listener who's complaining about our run times. Uh, we say fuck. Well, we don't say fuck you to the listeners a lot. I say fuck you to the listeners a lot. And I want you. Yeah, he, he says it when we're off camera, guys. It's constant. He's texting me while we're recording this. <laughs> I hate all 90 of those people that listened to our last episode. Um, but every last one. Every last one that we probably know by name. I can't trust them. <laughs> yeah, the, the thing has seeped into his bones. Uh, we fucking need to talk about Wilford Brimley. And yeah, so he's Blair's probably right, right? <laughs> Blair probably, yep. like if, if Blair hadn't gone completely insane, if you were like 10% less sane, 10% more sane, and he actually had the ability to kill all of them, um, 
Blair probably would have done the right thing, right? Yep. Oh, and actually, quick correction. It's Fuchs that looks like Richard Dreyfus, not Blair. Yeah, I, I, I caught that and I just didn't. Yeah, here, I'll, I'll do a take that you can insert later. Fuchs. <laughs> can, you me, can, you, can you give me a few more? Yeah. Fuchs? Fuchs. Fox. Pretend I mispronounced it because I do oh, that yeah. sometimes. Um, okay. Those are some editing options. Uh, yep. But I think I think honestly, besides thing related stuff, that Blair has the creepiest moment in the movie, where you they're looking through him uh, through that noose, and he just kind of calmly says, "The I'd like to come out now." So it's so good because I think at that point he's I think I, I'm in camp that Blair isn't infected until he gets infected off screen and yep. between the the two times we see him. Yeah, I think I think that hundred um, percent agree. I think that Blair is still human then. I think that the you could argue that the noose thing is supposed to be like um, either a trick by the thing, either to instill sympathy the monster, you know, say like, oh, oh yeah, poor Blair, we have to bring him in so he doesn't hurt himself. Or the thing actually does hang itself and then when they come to take the body down, it like jumps off of the noose or something. So, so wait, do, do you think, so actually, I think hold on. Blair, I think Blair is, is the, when they look through the noose, I think that Blair is actually human. I was just speaking for oh. the advocate. Oh, no, see, I don't. I think that sometime, I, I agree it happens off screen, but I think that sometimes between tying the noose and then not killing himself, like, I think when he says, I'd like to come out now, I don't think he's human at that point. It's possible. I mean, he's literally insane, so it's hard to it's hard to judge anything that any dialogue that comes out of him is like <laughs> like you can't just like hear something he says that's creepy and you're like, "Well, he's definitely an alien." Like, he could just be it could just be him being insane. I'm on team Blair is human until human until at some point off-screen. Though. Wait, here here's why here's why I think that though. So as we see with the thing is that anyone who isn't infected with the thing virus or whatever you want to call it, or it is no longer human, they tend to not want to cause a scene. They don't want to take authority. They want to sink into the background. They're, they're not there to, to cause any problems. Blair spends the second he finds out what's going on, spends the entire movie causing problems and making big issues about things and raising hell. Um, I don't know if he's really he's not. When do you insane. think he's? When do you think he's infected? Then I don't. Well, I, I, somewhere off screen in between when they put him in the, that shack and when they oh, come okay. back and see the noose. But then all of a sudden, his being like, "I'm fine now. I'm calm. You can have me back in. I'm not going to cause any problems." It's creepy. I believe him in that moment. But that's exactly what the thing does to everyone. It makes them docile and background characters. I just see, see that as a moment of clarity that comes to someone who's accepted their own death. And the line that he says, to counter that, the line that he says, uh, you know, I hear, I hear funny things out here. I hear funny things. like. But that's the self-preservation of wanting to get back in the group where he can continue his mission. Yeah, I do like your argument that like he's passive because he's like that's the only way that he can blend back in. That does count. Yep. But I think the best argument that you have is that if Blair hadn't been infected kind of early while he was out in the shack, then he wouldn't have had time to dig that underground cellar and build the the UFO. That's yeah. probably the best argument for Blair getting infected earlier in the movie. Uh 
Yeah, I still think I don't think he's infected when he goes into that shack because I don't everything think so we know, everything we know about the alien is he would not be fucking smashing things with axes. Yeah. Um, and also, I mean, that moment of paranoia kind of wakes them all up. Yeah, like, like oh shit's real. Yeah, Blair's like warnings are all very like like that's shit that like is not helpful to the thing. Yeah. Yeah, definitely best Wilford Brimley performance. He's amazing in this. Like he's he, He's good in Cocoon, he's good in Hard Target. I mean, he's a I guess I haven't performer. seen him. Yeah, I I haven't seen him in a t- you know, I'm not going to pretend that I've seen 20 Wilford Brimley movies I haven't, but I've seen him in uh In and Out with Kevin Klein. Yep. Oh yeah, he's good he's good in that. Yeah, he's a he's a he's a sweetie. Um, yeah. But yeah, I'm neglecting the diabetes commercial thing uh, on purpose. <laughs> but yeah, actually, I think the the sort of you you struck a point that I think would be a good way to sort of wrap this episode up. Great. That the setting it was insane. Do you have any final thoughts on Wolford Brimley? And I don't. I don't think scene? so. You know, I. I think here, the freak scene is amazing because he's just he's yep. actually just feral and 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 yeah. Here's the thing about, and, and this will segue into final thoughts. I, I feel, I'm kind of fine skipping over stray observations because you take any five minute stretch of this movie and I'm going to be able to talk about it and how great the way this works or, you know, the helicopter with the dog chasing or the little moment where uh, they're inspecting the dead body and the blanket moves or, you know, the problem with a movie like this for doing it on a podcast is we literally have to pick and choose our moments that we feel are the most interesting to talk about as we're talking about them. But there's at least 30 more that we could talk about probably well past our bedtimes. Yeah, death like the death of Fuchs isn't that interesting. Like, did he burn himself up? Did he, did he not? Like, the death of Fuchs isn't that interesting to me. So, I, I feel like it's good that we focused on, like, the kennel scene and the autopsy scene and blood test scene. But, um... But the scene where they find, like, the ice is so good. The yes. way it pans in as they... I mean, again, just trying to give an example of we could have talked about way more. So, if there was a favorite part of this movie that we didn't get a chance to talk about... We're sorry. We know. We're trying to make this not a four-hour podcast. It's kind of jumping back to what you were saying about how the thing wants to assimilate and sort of blend in and, like, slowly take over. Like, it doesn't want to, you know, set a fire and burn you down. The thing wants to... Build you uh, up. Yeah. It wants to build you up, man. It wants to make you better. It wants to make you a better version of you. It's like to- the Tony Roberts of Aliens. Um, yep. But also, it'll take all your money. It'll turn it all your money into a part of it, it as an extension. Yeah, exactly. It's a uh, this metaphor is still very elegant. Yeah, um, we're doing great. Yeah, <laughs> but the setting of the movie, I think, I think this is, in my opinion, an ideal horror movie, a platonic ideal for a horror movie, and it starts with the setting. The setting is when people think of nature, they think of you know trees, like streams, sort of like verdant, fertile life. When people look at the tundra, there's life is really hard to see like there's a few predators that hide themselves as best they can there's stuff that's working underneath the ice there's stuff that's working underneath the snow like uh, the tundra takes on this sort of uh dead lifelessness but it's not a dead lifelessness like say after a volcano goes off or you know like a, a ash beach it's it's the dead lifelessness that's sort of like about fading into uh, nothingness fading into neutrality and I think that the reason that the setting is so scary to us is because like we've all been there when like 
or at least especially if you're from the Midwest or you've traveled abroad, like during the snowy seasons, like you've all been there where like the snow is so pretty at first, but after the first, like after like three, four weeks, you're like, it kind of becomes depressing and it kind of just like washes over everything and becomes way more ominous. Uh, and that's the that is the thing the creature the the, the thing wants to it, it doesn't want to like burn you out the thing wants to like sneak into your thoughts and just like slowly push you down um and that's why i feel like the snow setting is so so perfect for this and it wouldn't have worked as well if it was you know out in the woods or something um the barrenness of it the alienness of it works to the benefit of the movie and also it forces conflict because if the thing goes outside it's going to freeze and it doesn't want to freeze it wants to you know go propagate somewhere um amongst uh people that don't know that it's a threat Um, yeah and ironically as much as it's a it's a portrayed as a villain in this movie in the way that it is the villain attacking our protagonist like all it wants to do is defend itself and uh propagate which is also what every species wants to do. It just does it in a weirder way that we don't like. Yeah, exactly. That's why it's so alien. And that's another thing to note about the thing. When it takes on these weird forms that are, you know, tentacle beasts or uh, bulbous dragon-like things, that's not necessarily the thing's natural form. It's just pulling from other species that it's taken down, which is yep. a really amazing thought. When it, you see something strange about its fleshiness, like maybe before it looked nothing like that, but it took over enough sort of like fleshy tentacle beasts that now that's what it looks like. It's like an organic version of the of the Borg from Star Trek, where instead of like assimilating species like individually as part of their collective whole, it's just literally just cramming them all in there. Yeah, exactly, and it can it it, it can pull them out like a, a, a you know a trick, yeah, um, which is whatever really it needs. Amazing. It's 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 camouflage, the best camouflage ever. Exactly, and yeah, the thing the thing wants to operate in the shadows, and the snow as a setting allows it to operate in the shadows. So yeah, that's kind of my my best argument for why that this thing is like a perfectly perfectly sort of structured horror movie it works on a micro level it works on a macro level it works on a human level it works on a sort of like detached level it works as both a you know sci-fi special effects romp and also works on a uh you know a human everyday level um and the setting i think is the ideal horror setting yep it's, it's an alien world right on earth yeah i'll let you have the last word on this it is your favorite movie i'll just say that you know i agree given it, it would depend on the day, probably between this, The Shining, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But, you know, most days I'm going to pick this as the best horror movie of all time. And, uh, yeah, if, I mean, if you haven't seen it, I don't know what you're doing listening to this because, Jesus Christ, go watch the thing. Yeah, go do it now. Yeah. Connor. <laughs> Con- well, Connor specifically pointed out that he hadn't seen it in full. So, because of the dog, the dog thing, right? The dog creeped him out too much. Yep, Jed yep. freaked him out too much. Yep. I mean, I respect that, but Connor, as someone told you, go fucking watch the thing. You're a <laughs> guest on our show. You come into our house, not having seen the thing. How dare you? If you would have told us that, we would have still invited you on, but we would have been slightly less friendly to you. I would have ratcheted it down several notches. Yeah. I would have only thanked you six times for coming on the show. That's, I mean, that's Peter's version of saying, fuck you. I'm from the Midwest, so. <laughs> you guys have no idea how many thank yous get cut off of this show. Uh, Peter's sure very the, polite. 
the Bridget episode was probably a hatchet job of me thanking her for coming on. Like, oh uh, my God, there, a very there good was observation. a Thank you so much. Sometimes you just start thanking people for like giving their thoughts on the movie. That's my favorite moments. Yeah, I'm very thankful. We wouldn't have this podcast if it wasn't for, you know, all that thoughtful commentary from people that aren't us. Uh, that is true. <laughs> <laughs> Some of our best episodes feature us the least. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, I would make a joke about Michael nodding his head, but uh, as we found out, he doesn't listen to the show if he's not on it. <laughs> Wait, Michael what? Uh, Garnary. There we go. Yeah, he was on our show. You don't You don't know? You need. To, we haven't had any other Michaels on. I just really needed you to try the last. Oh, I got what you were doing. <laughs> uh, anyway, <laughs> um, so yeah, so thank you so much for joining us for the thing. We're starting another part of Take Two uh, next month. We're doing uh, the Fly from 1958, uh, the Vincent Price one. Brandon Lede from the Swamp Flicks podcast will be our guest. We're extremely excited for that. That's one that I haven't seen. Uh, it's going to be part of my 31 Days of Horror, uh, Peter. I don't think you've seen it either, have you? Uh, not since I was very young and sort of like Thing from Another World. I didn't like it at the time. So I'm, uh, I'm, there's a pretty good chance I'll turn around on it. We'll see. Okay. Or turn on it. Yeah, either way, though, there will be turning. I am excited for one where we violently disagree about a movie again. It hasn't happened yet. It's weird. Like, we decided to form a podcast because we got along. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think the, the Beyond was always going to be the other one that we knew that I didn't really care for it. And you loved it, so. I still think that you might turn around the next time you watch it once you've Very adjusted possible. your expectations. Because, I mean, that's like, I didn't love Lost Highway the first time I watched it. And the second time I watched it, I was like, oh, I know what David Lynch is doing. Now I love yep. this. Yeah, yeah, it was the same one with Lost Highway as well. But, yep. uh, but you you forget how bitter and resentful I am and don't like to prove you right, so. Yeah, I'm not any of those Anyway, no, I, I really hope I do like it because I, I there's too many people that I love. And respect their movie opinions that uh, swear by the beyond. So so here's hoping that it's a come to Jesus episode, not a what was that again? But anyway, yeah. So then we're doing uh, we're doing 1986's The Fly uh, with Sam Scott. Another one of my top 100 movies of all time. We're, we're really hitting some favorites. Uh, I am not my favorite Cronenberg movie. That would be Videodrome, but probably my second or third favorite. My favorite is Dead Ringers. It would probably be in my top three. The Fly would also probably be in my top three, though. I love it. Yeah, so for the Halloween episode, we're going to be doing horror anthologies, sort of like I've mentioned on previous episodes at the beginning of this episode. And it is uh, we're going to be picking some uh, of our favorite horror anthology segments and sort of talking about uh, the genre as a whole. And uh, yeah, that's going to be uh, dropping on Christmas Day. Christmas Day? And that's going to be dropping on <laughs> Halloween Day. Please, please leave that in. <laughs> oh. Boy, what day is it? <laughs> um, it's yeah. the first of Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> We've got the golden chicken. <laughs> it's not a goose. You get a chicken. <laughs> you get a chicken. The golden pumpkin. <laughs> you get like a factory farm chicken that can't walk. Yep. Uh, that was such a perfect Freudian slip for you because you also <laughs> kind of giving away what we might be doing for December for our theme month. But uh, yeah, we, we, we have a couple really co- uh, good months coming up. I think we'll announce next week or maybe the following week what what our November theme is going to be. Uh, Whoa, big change ag- of pace. What an Agatha Christie mystery. <laughs> Anyone who's listening to the show that doesn't know what it is is probably thinking, 
what fucking Thanksgiving horror? We get it, guys. Yeah, we're never. Um, I, also, we're never doing Thanks Killing on this show. I've never even heard of that movie. Thanks Killing is so. Uh, I, I don't want to do any like purposefully bad movies on this. Yeah, just, no, just that's, feels that's so. That's so not interesting. I would like to do the room <laughs> at some point, but more to celebrate how awesome it is and not to be like this is terrible. It'd be fun. It, the room would just be fun to talk about, and it's not. That one's not purposefully bad. Tommy Wiseau thought he was making Citizen Kane. Yeah. He was uh, just of comedies. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> See, <and laughs> not not uh, of uh, not of a streetcar named Desire type movies. The room is fun to talk not about. Tennessee it's, Williams. It's a great thing about uh, Death of the Death of the Artist. The movie is not what Tommy Wiseau wanted wanted to make, and we're better off for it. If Tommy yep. Wiseau had been an had been more successful at that movie, it would be so boring. Yeah, no one would talk about it. Yeah, it'd just be like a boring little like soap opera chamber drama and be like, oh, well, yeah, competent little drama. It's like, no, the, the incomprehensibility is an asset. Yeah, him and Troy Miller would be talking about why they can't get any more movies made in Hollywood. Because <laughs> wow. they can't make any more gray product anymore. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait, is, that, is it Troy Miller? The Boondock Saints director. Yeah, that's. I think that's his name. Troy Duffy. Troy Duffy. Troy Miller is... Uh, the director from Mr. Show. Oh, that's really sad. Let's re-edit that so that we're not uh, besmirching the good name yeah. of Troy Miller. Yeah, or we can just cut all this out because it's worthless. <laughs> oh, yeah. And end of the show banter for no reason when we're all trying to go to sleep. Oh, this is Hatchet. This is Hatchet Bencherial right now. All right. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We're excited for to, to, to go to our next pair of movies next week. So, good night. And we'll see you when the fly comes a rolling. <laughs> <laughs>